Hi, I'm Alessandro Miro. I'm an actor in Puppy Love and Firefly Lane and Riverdale, to name a few. And you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast connected by the web. Some web, what kind of web, who knows. I'm your host Craig and I've been haunted by a vision of this podcast about the new Spider-Man, not Spider-Man movie, Madam Web. To make my vision come true, I've kidnapped two other voices to force them to live out their destiny. We're in the woods, it's going to be great. First up is a man who has never researched spiders, whether that be in the Amazon or otherwise. It's Chris. Hello. Hello. I may have accidentally finished all the jerky, I'm sorry. You're just looking up books about spiders on Amazon. So that's how it works. That's how you research spiders in the Amazon. That's how you mm-hmm. do it these days. Next up is the return of super nerd extraordinaire Darren Mooney. Hello. Hello. Don't worry, my Uncle Jonah will just sort this right out, I promise. <laughs> I'll call my Uncle Jonah and we'll get this sorted right now. He's too busy rushing an edition of the paper three (laughs) hours after an event happened. (laughs) Is that a spoiler? Probably. (laughs) I mean, there is some ambiguity about whether the Uncle Jonah ever actually appears in the movie, based on the reference that we just made. Could go either way. Could go either way, yeah. But first, before we spoil everything, we'll spoil nothing. So let's just go over some spoiler-free thoughts about Madam Web. So Darren, you go first. What did you think of this movie, if it can indeed be called that? I had something of a bit of an existential crisis when I watched this movie. This did not screen for critics in Ireland. I believe it screened for press in the US. It screened for junket press in the UK. It did not screen for Irish critics, which led to a situation where the chief critic of our national newspaper, the Irish Times, noted that Sony had significantly bumped up their opening weekend box office by forcing critics to pay for it. Based on the box office results of Madam Webb's opening weekend, a not insignificant number of the people who saw it must have been film critics. So I, because I am somebody who takes my job seriously, who treats the art form with the respect that it deserves, when Madame Webb opened on Valentine's Day, I sauntered to the cinema all by my lonesome. And not only did I saunter to the cinema to watch Madame Webb, I booked a double feature with Bob Marley, One Love, the Walkhard-esque biopic of Bob Marley. And let me say... It was definitely an experience. I will say, Bob Marley, One Love is a movie that looks much better when you watch it directly after Madame Web, <laughs> in that it is a functional movie that has a cohesive narrative, clear themes and clear ideas. Madame Web is a, a disaster of a movie. It is a spectacular misfire in almost every way it is possible for a movie to misfire. It is a fascinating case study of where we are culturally in the IP boom cycle, where this is obviously, as the title suggests, part of the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters, or the Spamunk, if you will. That is their acronym, not mine. There's three acronyms, isn't there? There's Spum, there's Sony's universe (laughs) of Marvel movies. Yeah, there's so many. I don't even know what they're calling this collective term. Appropriately enough, that perhaps tells you everything you need to know about the movie (laughs) in question. We can't even decide what the name of the fictional universe that is going to be part of. But it is a movie that only makes sense when you view it through the prism of IP brand management. If you were to pick somebody off the street, take them in and show them this movie blind, it would make no sense to them whatsoever. Even if they knew the character of Spider-Man and the iconography of Spider-Man, there would be no way for somebody sitting in a theater watching this movie blind to make sense of the experience that had just happened to them. It is a mess of a movie, and it is not even a particularly entertaining mess. I don't think it's a movie that you can laugh along with. It, for me, 
has none of the energy of Morbius, and I'm using energy in an extremely loose term there, but like it has none of the campy, interesting subtext that underpins Morbius, that makes Morbius at least interesting as much as it is tedious. Madame Web is a prequel to a prelude to a prequel to a series of films, but we're not entirely sure which films they are or whether they've already been released <laughs> or whether we may release them in the future. You get to the end of this movie and it feels like it is a commercial for what will be a commercial for the next Spider-Man movie, possibly. <laughs> it is an exhausting and emotionally draining film. So yeah, I didn't like it, Craig, is the long and short of it. So what was your Barbenheimer-style connection there then? Madame Marley, I guess? <laughs> you would call it? Madam Love sounds vaguely inappropriate. I visited Madam Love on Valentine's Day. Sends the wrong message, I think. I will tell you, if you want to gauge, obviously there was the Hollywood Reporter article that came out after the release of Madam Web after its box office performance. That was the article that seemed to confirm that the industry itself is now using the term superhero fatigue. It is not just something that is used by cultural critics such as myself. People in the corridors of power are using superhero fatigue. And if you want to get a sense of how, I don't want to say over it we are, but how much in the doldrums of it or how in decline it is. I do a radio slot on Friday mornings on Irish Radio. Plug there, Q102, check us out if you want. But I had booked tickets to see Madame Webb because I'm a journalist and as I said, I take my job seriously. And they were like, so Darren, what are you going to talk about on Friday? And I said, oh, Madame Webb, the new Spider-Man movie from Sony's out. And there was a long, suspense-filled pause while the producer seemed to tap out a message, erase it, tap it out again, and finally said, is there any chance you could see the Bob Marley movie instead? <laughs> that gives you a sense of where we are, I think, in the cultural conversation about these movies, this genre, and this film in particular. Well, we'll definitely get to more of that later in the programme, so to speak, just to use your radio terminology to make you feel at home. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> right back after these messages. <laughs> Chris, what were your thoughts on this movie? Mine was slightly more romantic, just a smidge more romantic. I mean, Darren, you were saying you went along by yourself. I got to go with Craig when I went. <laughs> we had a romantic Wetherspoons Valentine's meal no. beforehand as well. Yeah, Valentine's meal for two at Yon Witherspoons and then saddled up to Madame Webb. We did not do it with Marley, unfortunately. Didn't have the time. One film was enough for us, we thought. <laughs> Films about real people doing real stuff. Nah, not about that. Real people doing real stuff, exactly. <laughs> what a film it was. Darren, you've summed it up pretty well. Normally I would say they had thrown loads at the wall to see what would stick for any future project, but I don't even think they hit the wall. That's what sort of confuses me with this film, is there's like so many different elements where you went, well, they could have went down that angle and just focused on it and done it and maybe got something out of it, but they didn't. They just missed the wall so many times with all the stuff they were trying to throw at it. And it's another one of these ones where, oh, we're here to pitch the next film, really, or maybe tie it into something else, or maybe make it an origin for another spin, or the new universe can start from here again, because we don't know if we're going to continue being part of Marvel's thing. We might want to do our own thing. We could relaunch it right now. It's a confusing film. A lot of the time, you feel that the people reading the dialogue are as fed up of it as you are watching it. And it has all these, not even jump scary moments, these sort of big sound crashes and visual things that flash in front of you and scenes that chop and change. And sometimes you sit there and you think, oh, they're waking me back up. They're <laughs> bringing me back into the room. We saw it at IMAX in Edinburgh and it oh. was loud, distractingly loud at several moments where you go, whoa, what's <laughs> happening? 
I was like, is that a stylistic choice? Is it supposed to be throwing me off guard or not? I don't know. I still can't tell if it was a purposeful <laughs> choice. And then you can't tell. I mean, we'll get into it. Further on, you can't tell if it's like a proper editing style choice or just yes. bad. I did not enjoy this. It passed the point of, oh, this is kind of funny to watch into this is kind of annoying to watch. Sometimes films are bad in a way that you can almost enjoy them because they're bad. And this, I just didn't enjoy it. Over to you, Craig. <laughs> Craig loved it. Yeah, that's Craig thought it was great. Five stars, says Neil before blog. I'm not going to defer from the consensus here. I'm just going to actually just read the blurb that I I sent on a couple of Discord servers after seeing it because it was commented on positively as being an entertaining read. So here we go. Madam Webb is a total disaster. Not one convincing performance. Somehow a great cast agreed to appear in this thing, despite the fact that they all come out of it looking like bad actors. It has baffling dialogue that in no way resembles human speech, rapid cut, headache inducing action, terrible storytelling, laughable attempts at fan service. No decision made in the making of it was the right one. I had a great time with it. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Craig did laugh. I can confirm as someone that was there in the room with Craig. Craig laughed at moments that were in no way intended to be comedic. I laughed out loud at one moment and the six other people in the... By the way, another superhero movies are over moment. There were six people in the gigantic iSense screening of this I saw. I sauntered the Bob Marley afterwards and I could find my seat because everybody was already sitting down. (laughs) There's a line in there, I hope the spiders were worth it, mum. And I laughed out loud and all six other people in the cinema turned their heads and looked at me (laughs) and I felt really vulnerable and uncomfortable. Our screening was reasonably busy, actually. It was reasonably busy, actually. To be fair, people had attended that screening. (laughs) As I was watching it, I became more and more fascinated by what the film is rather than what I was watching and I think that's where I was getting my entertainment from because I was just waiting to see what ludicrous thing was going to happen next and it never disappointed. Every scene was just, (laughs) wow, this is a thing that they're doing and someone made this? When they say movies could be written by AI, this feels like a movie that was written by AI, but it wasn't. I think what probably happened, we'll get to it more, is something was handed in and then someone else took it and spat this out on the other end. You say AI, my feeling watching this is that this was noted to death. I don't think AI could have come up with this because AI doesn't have the perverse profit motivation that drives so much of corporate executives in America. This feels like, as you said, as somebody turned in a script which had a high concept, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get the spoiler zone, it's very obvious what the high concept driving this movie was, and that it is quite literally beloved 80s movie times (laughs) Spider-Man. But somehow along the way, some executives were like, we have some notes, and every single one of those notes was accepted into the script, even the ones that contradicted the other notes and the basic pitch of the movie. So yeah, I wouldn't agree with the AI thing. This feels like there's a very human movie in the way that humans can be terrifying. (laughs) Well, on that, should we crack open a can of Pepsi and light some fireworks and get stuck into this thing? (laughs) Yes. Non-spoiler, one of my favourite moments in the movie is when Dakota Johnson is handed a can of Pepsi, obviously a huge corporate sponsor of this movie, looks at it like it's an alien object and says, can I have anything else? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the funniest thing is in Cineworld, you get an advert for Pepsi before the film starts, and then what we got was another advert for Pepsi (laughs) Pepsi. for for the next two hours. So that was great. Never wanted Pepsi less than after seeing this. But anyway, let's do this. Okay, we are in the spoiler zone. Fantastic. Good soft drink that helped us in there. 
<laughs> it really hit me over the head with that sponsorship. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> to death, some would say. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't she see the S drop in her vision, but it's the P that drops in reality? That's one of my notes. Yeah, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't even spot that. Surely, no. But actually, the S falls past her when she's underwater as well. Ah, okay, okay, okay. All right. It's a bit like a Mission Impossible opening. That vision just shows you the rest of the film. <laughs> Pretty much, which I didn't catch the first time. Yes, I've seen it twice. That's what I do for podcasts. Craig is committed, psychiatrically. I'm a measurable blip on the box office, being the only living being that's seen this film twice. And that includes the people that made it. (laughs) So let's start by talking about characters such as they are. And we should start with our lead, Cassandra, or Cassie Webb, played by Dakota Johnson. And one of my notes is, is there anything distinct or consistent about her? It's immediately strange that she doesn't like people, but she became a paramedic a career that someone that doesn't like people probably wouldn't pursue. So why is she in this job? That was a question early on for me. I love that scene where she gets handed that drawing. It's like, thanks for saving my mother or whatever it is. And she's like, what do I do with this? I don't know. Just say thanks. Have you never met people before? (laughs) As somebody who has two doctors in his extended family, I think it is entirely possible for somebody to go into a healthcare profession while not understanding how human beings work psychologically. (laughs) I love you very much, brother and sister. (laughs) The thing with Cassie, which is kind of odd. Well, first of all, why make a Madame Webb? This is the thing that I I cannot understand at a high concept level. The character of Cassandra Webb, who is Madame Webb. Cassandra Webb is spelt with two Bs. Madame Webb is spelt with one B. It feels like you missed a branding opportunity there because it's not really a secret identity. (laughs) (laughs) You're still Madame Webb. It's just with one little B. Why make a Madame Webb movie? Start with the basic premise of the character. You are Sony. Sony have access to the entire slate of Spider-Man characters. Now, that is a very limited slate in that they are all arranged around Spider-Man. They have one big recurring central motif. That doesn't stop them, apparently. No, it doesn't stop them. I don't understand why you would make a Morbius movie. I don't understand why you would make a Venom movie without Spider-Man, given Venom is what if Spider-Man had a black suit and a long tongue. I don't understand why you would make a Craven movie without Spider-Man. But of all of those, I'm like, if you were to give me a Rolodex of we only have Spider-Man characters and we are making three movies, four movies, including one sequel, around characters associated with this brand, there is no way I would land on Madame Web as my third choice. Because the character isn't hugely popular. She doesn't really have any huge presence in the comics. She's not particularly central to the mythology of Spider-Man. Her power set is kind of boring. She's precognitive. She has appeared only a handful of times. In the comics, she is elderly and she is in a wheelchair, which limits the options for dynamic movement in terms of you're making a comic book action movie. Although if you watch the 90s cartoon, she's very prominent in that. Ah, maybe that's... ah. But in that, she's a cosmic being that's one of the Beyonders people. So even that was a radical change when it was adapted for the cartoon. Yeah. Why pick Madame Web of all this? It's already Craven (laughs) enough to make an entire universe out of characters who are secondary to Spider-Man. Of all those, why Madame Web? Is the reason to pick Madame Web so that when I go see Craven the Hunter later in the year, I'm like, yeah, that pitch makes sense. That's a good choice, comparatively. Good question. I I would counter that by saying there's no such thing as a bad idea. It's more the execution of it that's bad. So there's no reason they couldn't dig through the lore of Madame Web and turn it into something completely unique and interesting. They just didn't. But it is a confusing one to go for. When I heard that it was announced, I thought they were going to go for it because in the comics, I think it's Jessica Drew, maybe, that's the current Madame Web. And she also has spider power. So I thought they were going to do all that. 
So it's Spider Woman, but psychic. But they yeah. don't. They age down the traditional, original Madam Web. The only reason I could see that they went for Madam Web is, is there not some multiverse element to Madam Web as well in the comics? Or am I making that up in my head? Yeah, she gets involved in the Spider-Verse events. Yeah, so the Spider-Verse events and things. The only reason that I thought they potentially went down a sort of Madam Web cul-de-sac was so that they could use Madam Web as a kind of middle thing, a centre to their little <laughs> web of spumunk. <laughs> That they could use as a little jumping off point to all these other things if you wanted as a watcher of sorts or something to try and tie. And that's the closest excuse I can get as to why you would go Madam Web, apart from what I said in the spoiler free section at the beginning, which is in this film, you're kind of going, oh, this is a prequel to a Spider-Man maybe <laughs> terms and conditions apply so this can be seen as a beginning of a thing but why madam webb is part of that and we've spoken about morbius before we've spoken about venom before on the podcast it seems random to do those without spider-man and i think if you had done a spider-man film where madam webb featured in some sort of capacity for a purpose and then you go wow that really clicked the audience really engaged with that guess what we're going to do the origin story of that madam webb cool <laughs> you've earned it go and have your film madam webb but this without doesn't wasn't this originally set in the Andrew Garfield universe and then they did reshoots to get rid of all those references? It was meant to be the 90s, yes. I think. Yeah. And the soundtrack still is because you still have as a four non-blondes in there, you still have the cranberries in there. Obviously they have Toxic and they draw attention to Toxic on the radio. And someone's playing a PSP. That's going to be a big hit in this year, which is 2003. There's a Beyonce poster CGI'd on a wall. And there's a line which says, I have to go home and see Idol, which is, I believe, A.D. Ord. You don't think you see her lips move. I have another note in A.D. Ord, which we will get to when we talk about <laughs> another character. A lot of A.D. Ord in this movie. Mm. Why not just make a Spider-Woman movie? You have three Spider-Women here, not to jump ahead and cut Craig off, but like you have three Spider-Women here. Why not just make the movie where they are Spider-Women instead of making a movie where you show a grand total of two and a half seconds of blurry footage of them being Spider-Women? <laughs> well, it's the usual Sony thing, isn't it? We're going to tease all this stuff that we're not actually giving you in the trailer. <laughs> I mean, they do give us it, but everything you see in the trailer related to the Spider-Women is in the film. Pretty much. It's not quite as bad as photoshopping posters and stuff into the background of scenes to make the film into something that is not. Obviously, that's the same CGI guy that they hired to put Beyonce posters into this film. But it's almost misleading in a way where... All the promo imagery and stuff are the girls as the spider women in the costumes and they use that in parts of the film. If you go into this film thinking, oh, I'm going to get to see a spider woman film, spider women teaming up, yeah, we'll show the men how it's done. No, you do not get that in this film. And it's barely teased that you might get another one of these. <laughs> It could get to the end of this and go, well, the future's changed now, so you don't get spider powers. <laughs> you get pizza. <laughs> it's a bit like when they marketed X-Men Apocalypse with the traditional comic book costumes that only appear in the last 10 seconds of the movie, and then the next movie they all have different costumes. So they spent money in their production budget on that, and they never got used, really. Yeah, That was a bizarre choice in a, another universe. It's just very strange. And in terms of 
Cassie as a character, I very rarely got a sense of who she is. It starts off doing the whole thing about, well, you don't seem to relate to people very well. And she's like, yeah, I don't, but I'm cool with that. And then in theory, she has an arc around letting people in, but she doesn't really, because she already has close friends. And it's that message of, you don't get along with people all that easily. You need to change that. And well, I don't get along with people that easily either. I don't feel like I need to change that at all. I don't want to go to work and befriend everyone there. I'm okay. I'm, actually, I'm okay with my circle that I've built for myself. I don't need anything else. Craig is a paramedic in his spare time. Yeah, we should note. Yeah, in my spare time. Yeah, I'm a superhero that saves lives in my spare time. <laughs> she was just very strange. I didn't understand who she was at any point, and it just kept changing as the film went on. This is the thing where the only way to understand, I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic, the only way to understand this movie and to make sense of it is as an IP play. A lot of recent superhero projects and movies, I'm thinking in particular of The Flash from DC last year, I'm thinking arguably of The Marvels, I'm thinking certainly of Secret Invasion. They have the spectre, as we mentioned, of superhero fatigue entering the atmosphere. And there's this sense of needing to justify the continued existence of the IP, both to the audience and presumably to the shareholders. So all these movies have arcs where it's like, well, look, must there be a Superman? Yes, yes there must, because if there isn't, the entire world will die. We have to hire Henry Cavill, and we have to CGI all these other Supermen into this movie. Or Nick Fury, where it's like, maybe Samuel Jackson can stop being Nick Fury. Maybe we don't need the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No. We need the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What are you talking about? And here, you have in both directions Cassie being incredibly skeptical of the IP. The IP being Spider-Man. In the past, her entire arc with her mother, where her mother goes off to the Amazon when she was looking for spiders and she died. <laughs> She's looking for spiders, she dies, Cassie blames her for going to the Amazon, putting herself at risk while she was pregnant, and therefore not being around to protect her. I hope the spiders were worth it, Mom, is a line that actually appears in this movie, which feels very much like it's like, sod this mythology. I don't want to be part of this mythology about spiders biting people and getting magic powers. That IP doesn't interest me. I want my mom, I don't want a Spider-Man franchise. And then, of course, the other plot of this movie is she's surrounded with three kids, three future Spider-Women. Initially, she's like, I don't want to hang out with these three Spider-Women. I don't want to see the trailers for the next Spider-Man movie, thank you very much. That's just not what I'm interested in. But of course, in both cases, she eventually learns that she is wrong, and she should stop fighting the IP. And she needs to embrace that, yes, her mother is part of the Spider-Man shared universe, and yes, she's going to be the surrogate mother to three Spider-Women, and yes, her friend Ben Parker is going to be Uncle Ben. Ben can't wait to be an uncle is another actual quote that occurs in this movie to Spider-Man. Her role here is accepting that she is a passenger in the IP, that she has no real agency, that she has no real choice, that her own desires and wants and ambitions make no sense whatsoever outside of furthering the extension of the Spider-Man brand. And that is, I think, the only way that you can make sense of her motivations, her arc, her function, and her character textually at the very least. I think Johnson is doing some stuff we may talk about separately, but I think if you are trying to explain Cassie, that's the only way sitting in that chair in that cinema I could make sense of it. And maybe I'm very cynical and tired. Do you remember when Peter Parker was just a random kid that got bitten by a spider and he got powers and he decided that he needed to help people? Remember that? Now he's part of this cosmic brand merging tapestry. <laughs> oh, we'll come back to that. All of this has happened before and it shall happen again. <laughs> 
is the way that's delivered. The closest I could get to explaining Cassie, it didn't seem that she was unable to form relationships at work or anything like that. It was being around family, family occasions, being around a gaggle of women. It wasn't her comfort zone whatsoever, that family dynamic. And using the largest crowbar I can possibly (laughs) find. The only way I could justify that is you're going, oh, she was in the foster system and didn't have that same family dynamic. And okay, the film does not particularly show or explain or go into any way of doing that. But it's the closest in my head that I could draw lines between things and go, it's not the fact that she just can't relate to anyone. It's the fact that she can't get that family thing. She's been invited to a a baby shower. She doesn't want to do that kind of thing. If she was getting told we're going to the pub for a beer, she'd be like, okay. But being told you're going to a baby shower is like, no. For a Pepsi. Or a Pepsi. (laughs) Getting given a Pepsi instead of the beer. She's like, oh no. That's as close as I could get to crowbar it in. She doesn't form relationships with the girls because she didn't have that kind of childhood either and is not relating to them in this weird circumstance that they all get brought together in the first place. And it doesn't do tons by the end to go, oh, well, they've all been brought together in this development. I've now gotten over my worry about hanging out with people. I now hang out with these three girls I've strangely (laughs) adopted through a series of circumstances where one parent got trapped in a well, the other one's car's broken down somewhere else. I forget all the excuses for the parents not being anywhere near or any other family members whatsoever. I'm just going to put my hands up and say that if your teenage daughter goes to live with a woman who calls herself Madam Webb, that's a social services case waiting to happen. (laughs) This isn't a nice brownstone in New York City. How did she afford that? Oh God, it's another question. (laughs) The thing is, as a parent, you would go, how do you spell that? And they'd go, it's W-E-B-B, two Bs. (laughs) Oh, well, that's not suspicious at all. That's all right. If it was one B, then I'd be like, that's a bit weird, that's a bit fishy. But two Bs, ah, that's fine. (laughs) The disheartening thing is that Cassie can never be president because she wasn't born in the United States. She was born in a cave in Peru. That's the disappointing thing. That's the depressing thing. There's a character arc they can never do. That's it. (laughs) President Webb. President Webb. (laughs) That was going to be film four, but they can't do it now. Oh, well, what a shame. That baby shower scene was, well, one of the many baffling points because what you had was Ben was like, yeah, they're roping you into all these games. And Ben seems like the most human character in the film, as in some of the things he says make sense as human speech. Only some of them. But you'd think he would say to his sister-in-law, maybe don't invite Cassie in because she didn't have a great childhood in that respect and will probably be really weird about it. So you probably don't want her in your games and then... It happens. Yeah, people that are holding family events, allow people to say no to your awkward shenanigans. Some of us do not want to be involved. I don't want to be there. It's fine. (laughs) It's okay. I'll be outside with my friends. Why is she there in the first place? I don't know. That's baffling. It really is baffling. Craig, you you brought up something there that I think is worth stressing in terms of what this movie is. The Spider-Man origin, as you say, is a kid who just randomly gets bitten by a spider. It's with great power comes great responsibility. The entire premise of Spider-Man is he's a normal teenage boy who through sheer luck coincidence happened to be in the right place at the right time to get these powers and to have to deal with the consequences of it. And you guys have talked about comic book movies, you've talked about comics. The way the comics work is you layer continuity after continuity after continuity on top of them. The villain who we'll talk about in a moment is Ezekiel Sims. He's a J. Michael Straczynski, John Romita creation. But he's part of that convolution of Spider-Man's backstory that happens over decades, where it's eventually revealed in the comics and in the amazing Spider-Man movies from Sony that his parents were secret agents or spies or scientists or whatever. And 
his backstory becomes a lot more specific. And here, as you said, you have through Cassie this thematic connection to the spider people of the Peruvian Amazon. It's not the same spider, but it does feel like it's kind of trying to retrofit Spider-Man into like a Dune or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings-esque <laughs> chosen mythology where Peter Parker is destined to get bitten by a spider in the urban jungle of Manhattan, New York City and become like one of those Peruvian Spider-Men because obviously he has the same costume as Sims as well. And it feels like this weird attempt to mythologize Spider-Man because obviously Spider-Man is the center of the Spamunk, the Sony Pictures Universe of Marvel characters even though he's not in it. That's the thing. He is the absent center. He is the messiah. He is the silhouette, the shape that is absent from the center of the web and everything must array itself around him. Venom still looks like Spider-Man, even though he has never met (laughs) Spider-Man. Morbius hangs out with Vulture, who fought Spider-Man in Spider-Man Homecoming, but doesn't appear to be in the same universe. Kraven the Hunter is probably never going to hunt Spider-Man. But they all have this missing piece at the center, which blends with this weird sort of religious symbolism, where it's kind of like Spider-Man is the prince who is promised. Everybody in this universe, which is arranged around Spider-Man, is waiting for Spider-Man to arrive. So this teenager from Queens, whose entire shtick is that he's not Captain America, or Iron Man, or Thor. He's just... A kid has become this kind of messiah-esque figure where Madam Web is like the Spider-Man nativity story. Madam Web is John the Baptist. She's the one who foresees the coming of the Spider-Man. And as Craig pointed out, the paradox that somehow while doing this, they cannot mention (laughs) Spider-Man. They can't even mention Peter Parker. So the movie cannot acknowledge the prophet that Cassandra Webb is serving to welcome into the world. (laughs) It's such a fascinating mess of contradictions that goes against everything that makes Spider-Man interesting as a character, but also being a universe built around him. It is insane. My head is struggling to contain all of these ideas. I don't get how they can get so close to that line, though. (laughs) That's what just throws the entire thing out. You've got a Ben Parker who's going to be an uncle. All the relations around the whole thing, but you still can't mention him by name. (laughs) And they have the IP, right? You would understand this if this was Sony trying to put something that was in the MCU that they did not have the permissions to use. Whatever you do, you cannot say the name Tony Stark. You're allowed to use anything else that you own in your toy box, but you cannot say Tony Stark. Right, okay, fine. We'll go as close to the line as we possibly can without saying Tony Stark. Fine. But this, they own Peter Parker. They can say Peter Parker as many times as they want. They can put pictures of Peter Parker anywhere. They can have all his family, all his relations, everything. They've got a whole lot. And they don't do it. How not? How can you go and do this entire thing, the nativity story, and in the end you never call him Jesus? How do you do it? The bit where Mary Parker says, and his name is, and the balloon pops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, they're going to eventually. <laughs> not even at meat. And that, no. <laughs> We're done now. We're not doing that. We're not going to commit. This might not be set in the <laughs> Spider-Man universe. <laughs> we'll let the audience make their own mind up at the end of the film. That will be the mystery. 
is this actually in the Spider-Man universe? <laughs> Although at least Peter Parker does actually appear in this film, unlike any other Spum movie. Apart from Venom 2, I guess, where there's a picture of him in a post credit scene. Yeah, but does he appear for longer in this film? Has someone got a stopwatch, Craig? You need to go for a third time with your stopwatch. (laughs) It's probably about the same. I don't know. I'm not here for probably's, Craig. I need hard facts and numbers. Isn't the rumour that they had an Andrew Garfield cameo prepared for this and they had a Tom Holland cameo considered for this as well? Oh, probably. It's like Ben (laughs) Affleck being in DC movies. Oh, in Aquaman, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking more of like a How I Met Your Mother style thing. Hey kids, did I ever tell you about the day I was born? (laughs) To tell you about that, in fact, let's go back to the 70s because the real story starts there. But you only shoot them from the back of the head, so it's up to the audience whether or not it's Tom Holland or Andrew Garfield. Is it Tom Holland? Is it Andrew Garfield? Is it Tobey Maguire? Who knows? And the shock reveal is it's Tobey Maguire. (laughs) And they probably asked Andrew Garfield, and he was like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not going through that again. I'm not doing press tours for other films where I get asked if I'm in this Spider-Man movie again. Can't do it. No thanks. It was hell. The story you're referring to with Ezekiel and so on from the Straczynski run was to do with animal totems or yes. some nonsense like that. It was Spider-Man is the human embodiment of the spider totem. And that explains why a lot of his villains are animal themed because there's some kind of cosmic force drawing that in. All the animals like rhinos, vultures, goblins, electros, all the animals. All the animals. Also, all those people that, because it's the comics, not the films, had never met Peter Parker before they became villains. They all became villains as a result of other circumstances. But sure, they're drawn to him through destiny or nonsense like that. That was a point in the comics where I was checking out because I was like, nah, this is not Spider-Man anymore. Craig, you had to stay for the sequence where it was revealed that Gwen Stacy had love children with Norman Osborn. Oh, I've read that. <laughs> You're like, no, I was checked out in the spider tone, but the Gwen Stacy, Norman Osborn kids, I was entirely on board with. One more day was the breaking point for me. That was the next thing I was going to go to, the one where Spider-Man sells his marriage to the devil in order to save Aunt May. (laughs) Listeners who are not familiar with Spider-Man comics, that is not an exaggeration. Although No Way Home is kind of an adaptation of One More Day. Kind of. Kind of. With one major, well, not with one major, but with several major revisions to the core concept, yes. Both stories end with Peter Parker having his identity magically erased from the world. Yes. That's basically where the similarities end. (laughs) actually (laughs) spoilers for no way home and the comics and the comics and let me just pass you that massive crowbar i was using earlier on craig i'll let you use that one concerning issue that comes from this in relation to spider-man is if he's ever going to exist in this universe does that not make his costume really dodgy cultural appropriation because he's wearing (laughs) what these natives wear in the peruvian Amazon. Well, Izzy, Craig, you are the expert. You have seen this as many times as myself and Chris combined, to be clear. <laughs> but again, this is one of the things we're talking all over the shop, but if we want to talk about Ezekiel Sims. Ezekiel Sims is the one who wears the Spider-Man-esque costume, right? Yes, but when you see flashes of the Las Arañas people, ah, they're okay. covered in red paints and they have the ropes tied around them, so it's kind of a web pattern. There's a quick shot of one of them hanging upside down and it's almost the rope makes the eye pattern. So... You get a brief glimpse of, oh, that guy looks kind of like Spider-Man. I don't know. I think it's more likely that he just stole a serial killer's motif. I think it's much more likely that Spider-Man is just (laughs) swinging around New York City cosplaying like Ted Bundy. That seems much more likely in the grand scheme of things. Good luck getting away from the public calling you Ceiling Man, because you're never going to 
beat that. It doesn't matter how much branding you try and do. <laughs> They've already branded you. He'll be walking on the ground. People will be like, what a ceiling man doing walking on the ground? <laughs> the moment where Julia goes, he's like a spider person. You can almost hear the lawyers approaching, <laughs> stampeding across. <laughs> We've got one alteration we want to make to that sentence, Sydney, before you say it. And we'll talk about Sims in a moment, because obviously there is a lot to talk about with Sims. But the weird thing is, why does he have the costume? There's a sequence where he's introduced walking through the subway barefoot. That's the image of him from the Romita run. Romita draws him wearing a business suit with his feet on the ground. The idea is that he's adapted to the urban environment. He's connected to the city in a very literal, physical way. Not a villain in the comics either. No, he's kind of a mentor figure. But the idea is that he is an animal totem figure who is adapted to the urban environment. So he dresses like he works in the city, but his feet are like an animal. They're naked. They're kind of around. But in this, it is never explained why he does that. So it looks like he may be doing that to allow him to stick to surfaces. So why in the name of goodness does he dress himself in an all black onesie? Particularly in a universe that doesn't seem to have superheroes yet. One of my theories is that the spider villain and Ezekiel were once conceived as two different characters. Because you do have this weird distinction of you have scenes with Ezekiel not in costume, yeah. and then he's in costume whenever the action stuff happens. And then it's later in the film where he takes his mask off and you see him in costume but unmasked. So I wonder if it's like a Shredder situation from another Sony <laughs> Misfire <laughs> franchise thing, where it's, yeah, we meant these to be one character originally and now there are two characters, whereas here it's, we meant two characters, but there's one character. So maybe in some version of the script, Ezekiel was the mentor figure, and there was some other weird cosmic being coming after them with spider powers. It was another one of those ones I can't explain, even in, I'm a fan of running off and doing a bit of headcanon, but the fact that he would walk off the train, he's in costume, he'd be on the ceiling, he's in costume, then he's standing on the ground, not in costume. If it was just the in-your-head flashbacks, weird dialogue scene, you could kind of explain it in that maybe it's still weird but when it's that subway scene thing you go how's this working timing wise everything happening it just doesn't work and craig your reasoning there of at some point they had two different villains is as close as i can get to that because he's in his civvies and he's prepared to murder them in full view of in everybody on the train public, yeah. without a costume and then once they get off the train he's like right i'm gonna go get changed <laughs> And then go after them. Can I throw an idea out there to compliment your idea, Craig? Part of me wonders if this is a reshoot note where it's like, it's a superhero movie, there has to be a superhero costume. Yeah. And they're like, what's the easiest one we can do? <laughs> we could just throw it on the stunt guy. Because it's a Spider-Man costume as well. Yeah, evil Spider-Man costume. Yeah, it's a non-union equivalent Spider-Man costume. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking about Ezekiel, so we'll just keep talking about him. Yeah. We don't have to talk in order of the agenda. This film doesn't make any logical structural sense, so why should this not be? So yeah, Ezekiel, again, another strange character. I'd be willing to bet that all of his dialogue was... ADR'd. Not a single line sounds natural. You see his lips move twice. I was counting the first time I watched it. You can see his lips move on screen while he's saying things precisely twice. And it is very obvious that even in those scenes, he is not saying the words that you are hearing. To be fair to the guy, he doesn't mess around. He doesn't fill any conversations with irrelevant small talk. <laughs> he's straight in there to the point. <laughs> with the exposition. There's this one night stand and it's a bad dream. He's like, no, I just had a vision of my death and I know it's going to come true. <laughs> and by the way, I need your NSA secrets because I know you have them i'm gonna poison you now and you tell me your password and i'll stop the poison oh look, you've told me your password i'm not gonna stop the poison and it takes exactly as long as craig has taken to summarize it <laughs> <laughs> there's no dressing around that plotting 
And then later on, there's the reminder where he's like, every hour brings me closer to my fate or whatever. Why haven't you found them yet, girl in the chair? Girl from girls in the chair. He's introduced walking to the opera house in a tuxedo and he meets the woman. And in the one bit of personality that anybody in this movie ever shows, she drops her program and he picks it up to hand it back to her and then flirtingly whips it away from her and then teasingly smiles at her. And you're like, wow, Tahir Rahim, he's a really charismatic performer. I'm really looking forward to how they use this energy over the next hour and 40 minutes I'm going to spend with this character. And it's like, nope, I hope you enjoyed it because that's all you're going to get. (laughs) And his vision of the future that's not going to come true, it's a fake vision so that Cassie can achieve her destiny. The logic of the vision doesn't make sense as well. Why do the three spider women decide to break into his house and throw him off a roof? (laughs) (laughs) What possibly could you have done to provoke these three spider women, you murdering psychopath? Not one, not two, but three spider women. Three spider women have come after you. You've obviously done something bad. What are you going to do to remedy that? No, I'm going to kill the three people that are going to try and come and kill me for reasons. I'm going to commit several murders in order just to find out who these murderers are that are going to kill me. Or I could do what my comic counterpart did and lock them in a vault underground because I have lots of money. That's what he did in the comics. I mean, if you play out logic used in different shows, you go, well, I was murdered in that apartment. I'll buy a different apartment. (laughs) Up yours. Take that. Oh, it shows me being killed in America. I'm moving. I'm off to Canada, bitches. I hear Monte Carlo's nice and I'm rich, so I'm fitting right in. I am rolling in it. I am going to live in a submarine. Good luck, spider people. (laughs) The standard logic of a movie like this or a time travel plot or a prophecy plot like this is him trying to prevent it causes it to happen. So you're waiting throughout the movie for a sequence where, as you said, he attempts to murder these three women. So they proactively defend themselves and kill him, which therefore fulfills his vision. But instead, the movie never explains the context of the vision. It never explains what he is doing that caused them to want to kill him in this future and instead has him killed by Madame Webb 10 to 15 to 20 years earlier than he was supposed to be, which means that the death that he saw never happened at all. Time travel logic is obviously, it makes no sense. There are any number of lows you can follow, but Madame Webb doesn't even try to do anything knowing or winking or clever with it. It's just, no, he saw himself being murdered by these three women. Now he's murdered by this other woman. The end, story over, done. Congratulations, you managed to prevent that from happening, but in doing so... I mean, in a very real sense, the villain wins here, right? (laughs) Well, he achieves his goal, just not the way he thought he was going to. You make such a good point, Darren. The normal thing is, oh, well, in trying to avoid it, they never would have got spider powers or they never would have met each other had I not stepped in the middle and caused all of them to come together. Therefore, I've brought about my demand. But it doesn't do it. (laughs) Did they think it was smart with the like oh everyone will expect this scene to come true ah we're gonna pull the rug out from under them i don't know none of that happens now apart from they do get spider powers maybe get spider powers not in this film that's for madam web three <laughs> that's the third film they've turned one of the bees round to make a three Oh, nice. Yeah, there's the nice. pitch. Or the E. I guess it would be the E, wouldn't it? Is this the point to talk about? The spider-shaped elephant in the room that is several spider-shaped elephants in the room. But the clear sense watching this that this was meant to be a Terminator movie about Spider-Man. Watching this movie and looking at all the ingredients of it and looking at the events that happen, paying no attention to the dialogue that has been heavily ADR'd and paying no attention to the 2.5 seconds 
seconds that you see the women in costume. This movie seems to make more sense if Ezekiel Sims sees Spider-Man killing him in the future, and so decides to prevent the birth of Spider-Man, which would explain why the key climactic set piece of the movie takes place while Mary Parker is on the way to the hospital to deliver her as-yet-unnamed baby with her brother-in-law Ben, who can't wait to be an uncle. But it does feel like they got cold feet at some point, and were like, we can't do the Terminator but with Spider-Man. So, I guess three Spider-Women? Get Mary to the hospital. He won't be interested in you now because I'm here. Okay. <laughs> also, other people died in that car when the grenade went off, probably. So, there's a cost here. Are your lives more important than theirs, apparently? Well, they're not connected to the brand. Are they holding up a shared universe of Sony Pictures Marvel characters, Craig? <laughs> Their lives are not as valuable. The shareholders don't care. The helicopter pilot as well, he died. <laughs> Poor guy. I was just going to give Darren a bit of credit for the Terminator thing. I hadn't quite clicked on that. That's the first time I've heard <laughs> that. I like that. As a, That's what it could have been. The closest other thing that someone said was kind of Brightburn, but Spider-Man, which isn't close enough for this. But Terminator, that was almost the strongest element for me. Craig knows I hate horror and I hate all that sort of stuff. It would not be for me 100%. But the idea of Spider-Man, but evil and after you is kind of a good <laughs> concept of a film. <laughs> Also called Venom. Yeah. <laughs> We're never going to get that Venom film where he's stalking Peter Parker in his personal life. We're just never going to get it. No. It's never going to happen. And I'm upset about it every day. That's a billion dollars in the bank. You lean into the twilightness of, say, the Amazing Spider-Man movies, and you make Andrew Garfield the ex-boyfriend character for yeah. Venom. And you have him come between Eddie and Venom, because the Venom movies are a buddy thing. That's how you spice up the relationship. You basically have the climax of Venom 2 be the ex-boyfriend shows up, and it's Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. And that's a billion dollars in the bank for Venom 3. Yeah, but they're not going to do it. No, they will never do that. The Terminator thing, you probably didn't see it, Chris, because the chase isn't consistent. It just comes and goes. But there are some beats that are lifted directly from Terminator, such as they hide out in a motel, which yeah. granted is a pretty standard hiding place when you're on the run. But how they manage to avoid showing up on cameras while they're doing it. Oh, don't. That wound me up. Something <laughs> rotten. <laughs> What's-her-name was having a coffee break at the time and wasn't watching the screens? While an entire foreign trip happened, <laughs> presumably flights and crossing borders <laughs> and all that went unnoticed by the NSA's super-duper tracking system. Chris, this takes place in 2003. There is no reason whatsoever the US government would be paying particularly close attention to international air travel at that time. No, no reason whatsoever. Nothing would have happened in recent... Yeah, no. I remember 2003 myself. You could walk out onto an airfield on a constant. But her in the chair, there would be record of a ticket being bought and paying for airport parking to park her stolen, dinged-up taxi <laughs> that she drives when she comes back. <laughs> There's a Spider-Man-shaped dent in the cover of the taxi. <laughs> it also has no license plate. That's a Terminator reference as well, because that's exactly what the Terminator does to get into the police station. Yeah, and... Aesthetically, there's some connections to it. A lot of it's set in kind of backwater places where there aren't a lot of people. That's probably something they were driving at, but they just never got to because 
they were trying to do so many other things. Or they revised out. My feeling watching this is that this is something that was revised out. I suspect the pitch in the room was Terminator times Spider-Man and everyone was like, yeah, that's a billion dollar idea. And at some point, the executives got incredibly skittish. Where they're like, can we do a Terminator movie with Spider- Do we want to sully the brand that way? And it's like, no, okay, what if it's kind of Spider-Man, but not really? It's like, okay, I like your idea. What if it's Spider-Woman? Okay, what if it's three Spider-Women? But we are keeping the baby in there, yeah. But what if the baby- we don't say it's Spider-Man. It really does feel like that Key and Peele sketch with the Gremlins 2 ideas. Madam Web feels like its creative process was basically that. <laughs> the other thing with Ezekiel as well, he becomes a villain very quickly by, you found the spider? Great. I'm just going to murder everybody around you now because <laughs> I want the spider for reasons that aren't explained. He says, my family lost everything, so I need this spider. Is he sick? Why does he want it? <laughs> There's a motivation point, right? He needs it because he's sick and he's hiding it. And Constance needs it because her daughter's sick and needs it. It could be this, well, I'm going to have it because I want to not be sick anymore. I'm not going to let you study it and possibly cure us both. That would be dumb. I'm going to take this spider, even though I know nothing about how it works. And that'll do. There's also the moment where he murders three people and then he shoots Constance and he's like, what have I done? <laughs> I've gone too far. This is too much. I never meant to shoot you. Those other three I don't care about, but you, Constance. And then Las Aranas don't do anything to him at all. They just let him go. Let him wander. You know, this isn't the ideal form of movie criticism, but Chris's point about the international flights, the thing that got me is how long was Cassie in Peru for that extended exposition dump and flashback? A week. Was it a week? Yeah. Okay, because it doesn't feel like the girls have been hiding out at the Parker place for a week. It feels like they got there four hours ago when Mary goes into labor. Ezekiel also says, we haven't seen them for a week. Okay. See, this is why you watch it twice, Craig. This is why you're the expert here. I'm committed. That's it. When I'm doing a podcast about film, I watch it twice because first time is just vibes. Second time is (laughs) I pay attention or more attention. I ain't doing either. (laughs) (laughs) We've seen nothing for all this time. And like you say, you cut back to them and it's like, oh, they've watched a film in the afternoon and everything's fixed now. We're all getting on. There's no questions whatsoever. I really like Adam Scott. If there's one thing that I can try and go, well, this was all right. (laughs) I think Adam Scott was all right. I don't think what he was given was particularly but... Adam Scott in this was all right. The only bit I couldn't get was this little bit of dialogue between him and Cassie and going, anyway, so you know how it's in the news that I've abducted three kids? Anyway, they're yours now. (laughs) I'm going to go off and do something for my self-healing process. You just take care of these and keep them off of cameras, hide them under a blanket, something. Just tied out, as you normally would do if I just handed you randomly three kids that I have abducted. You know the way your sister-in-law is pregnant and how she probably wants a bit of excitement around the house, a little bit of unpredictability, maybe some danger brought into her immediate environment? She'd love it. It'd be great. Think of it as practice. Tell her that's what she gets for forcing me to play those stupid baby (laughs) shower games. (laughs) That's how vindictive Cassie is. This is what kids turn into. (laughs) Babies grow up and become these three. Learn now. And then Ben gets to Mary's house and says, Hi, Mary, I brought these three teenagers. Isn't there three teenagers that have been adopted that are in the news at the moment? Yeah, but this ain't them. For different three teenagers. They're just going to live with us for a while, and it doesn't make any sense. In fairness, that is somewhat consistent with Ben Parker's retroactive characterization when you eventually learn more about him in the comics, as in, he'll do anything for anyone, no questions <laughs> asked. That's the kind of guy he is. Whenever he's brought up in the comics, everyone who knew him talks about how much of a saint he was. Never did a thing wrong in his 
his life and always helped people, even to his own detriment. Just keep living up to that impossible example, Peter, because <laughs> that's the kind of guy your uncle was. He never made a mistake. I want to find the one hot dog vendor in New York that he never tipped. Yeah, that's it. the one time he was rude to be dirt somewhere. <laughs> Dig up the dirt on Ben Parker. Gotta be somewhere. That was another name that's not allowed to be said. You're not allowed to say May for some reason. Yeah, he does have a partner he's very serious about. Yeah. I've met someone. What's her name? Doesn't say anything. Oh, it's serious. Does he only not tell her the names of people he's seeing that aren't serious? Again, that does feel like it's a, could we get away with a Marissa Tomei cameo? It does feel like at some point some executive was like, but we can get Marissa Tomei to appear in this, right? I don't know about it, but we can try. (laughs) <laughs> Do you think there was a post-credit scene in this originally that was going to be something like that? Like it would be Ben coming home to family or coming to visit Mary, introducing his girlfriend, May, and it's Marissa Tomei. Maybe. There'd be a bit of an age difference there, wouldn't there? Well, Marissa Tomei, not to get shallow and not to be kind of pervy on the pot. She looks fairly good. She could pull it off. <laughs> Wasn't that the big thing when she was cast as May, was that she looked too young, so to speak? But it's the same actual real-life age difference that Peter Parker and May Parker had in the comics. 50s to 15. Yeah. But clearly Steve Ditko had never seen a 50-year-old woman before, so drew her as if she was 90. May had a very hard life. She was no Uncle Ben. Well, even he looked 90 as well. <laughs> I don't know. What's her name? The actress that played her in Rosemary Harris, that's it. Rosemary Harris, yes, in the Raimi. She's still alive, isn't she? Get her in. Oh, just have Adam Scott introduce Rosemary Harris as his <laughs> girlfriend. Like, drag me to hell, yeah. <laughs> Play it completely straight. Don't draw attention to it. Just act like it's the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> this is my girlfriend, May. May. She's like, Hi. <laughs> Do they have a wig on her, at least? A very unconvincing no, no. wig. Just completely as she is. <laughs> I want to see that post-credits thing. <laughs> it would be the least strange thing that happens in the film. I would maybe re-watch this film if I knew that was going to be the <laughs> post-credits thing. <laughs> they went through the Aunt May. So they started with Marissa Tomei. She laughed at their face. And, and then they, they tried Sally Field. And she said, I'm not going near Spider-Man anything ever again. And then Rosemary Harris. She's like, well, I can't manage the stairs, but okay. <laughs> I'll have to be on the ground floor um, And I'm in a wheelchair now I don't know if she is But that would be even funnier He just wheels her in There she is <laughs> It'd be absolutely great But anyway, Ezekiel There's really not much to say about him He's a flat murderer And he only has one scene with Cassie Which is a vision Which doesn't make sense So he can enter her visions now For some reason And he gets defeated through the power of Pepsi Yeah, he just gets crushed by a giant pea Taken out by pea Can we talk about that scene for a second Since you brought it up and it's now fresh in my head. That strange bit of on-screen dialogue that they get together. The thing that looks like it's not a vision and then is. There's a lot of that, isn't there? There's a lot of scenes that don't appear to be visions and then she wakes up or she comes to her senses and it turns out it was a vision. That was one of the biggest in my head, sitting there thinking, this was a weird cut slash reshoot slash re-edit of this entire thing because it looks like she goes back to the scene of the crime for reasons and then they have this conversation and then she wakes up. And you're like, did she go? Did she then go back and fall asleep and we've now cut time? No, they just had this weird vision quest dialogue where she spoke to herself in her head or him, but not. It was like, we need her to be told this exposition, but we've found no other way to make this make sense. Therefore, it's now some sort of weird vision that she gets and it'll pan out in the wash. It was one of those scenes that just really didn't work for me. Does he not appear in costume partway through that as well? 
Probably. Or am I now really making that up? The thing is, if they wanted to have them have a chat in the diner that was a vision, then why do you show her picking up her keys, leaving the motel room, locking the yeah. door, walking away, driving to the diner? Can you just cut to the diner? <laughs> Cuts to the diner, show her slightly nodding off, getting a bit woozy, and then she's in the diner having the conversation. This is the thing, just how poorly this is constructed visually in terms of grammar. I can understand conceptually why you wouldn't want to distinguish between Cassie's visions and reality, because you'd want theoretically some suspense. You want to show something terrible happening and the audience is shocked and then you go back and you get another chance to fix it. But the problem is that these sequences, as Craig said, they go on so long that they border on being (laughs) interminable. The one that I think about is the sequence where Ezekiel is coming on the train and the three girls get on one time and she sees the vision of it and then it happens. But the vision of it seems to take like a solid eight to ten minutes (laughs) for all of the elements to arrange themselves and then she just jumps back eight minutes in the movie and I'm like you have not bought enough goodwill for me to buy that (laughs) if you're gonna have her show visions make them surreal make them abstract make them visually interesting and engaging to me just visually make it fun for me to watch rather than have me go wait is this a flashback as you said is this a dream is this a memory is this a conversation where she has returned to the diner that has mysteriously been refurbished apparently in the several hours since she drove a taxi into it this visual storytelling here is not great unfortunately yeah and they do the vision fake out thing too many times to the point where you're just expecting nothing to be real i think the only time it's used effectively is funnily enough in the climax where she's seeing things happen and then thinking right now we need to duck or you need to move out the way and that's a good use of that power which is fun the fireworks factory is theoretically fun the only problem is it only lasts like 30 seconds and then you're immediately in pepsi product placement again is it pepsi (laughs) factory or is it a fireworks factory (laughs) Pepsi also make fireworks. They make fireworks in your mouth. It's to capture the experience of drinking Pepsi. The secret ingredient. I think it was a Pepsi factory repurposed as a fireworks storage place or something. I don't know. I love that that is the thing the script goes out of its way to set up earlier in the movie is (laughs) you can't go in there. There's fireworks. That's what we're going to pay off. When we get to third act, (laughs) that line is what we're going to make sure that the audience has firmly planted in their head and remembers coming up to the climax of this movie. And in case you've forgotten, all of that dialogue repeats as if you're supposed to sit there as the audience and think, oh, wow, no. (laughs) Now it's coming together. (laughs) Here's this one building I know that's very dangerous and we're (laughs) going to have a fight in there. Hey kids, let's go where the explosives are. (laughs) Now look, I know I haven't been the best caretaker for you three young women who need to be protected, but trust me, we're going to the fireworks factory to fight the psychopath who wants to murder you. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. And do exactly what I say. And they're like, yeah, we're going to listen to you now. Because we trust you after leaving us for a week. While we're shouting out things that I like during the climatic action sequence, I love the bit where they charge the EKG machine and just press it against the roof of the ambulance. That was actually a nice little touch. That was one bit of that climatic sequence I enjoyed. And it was the, don't touch the sides, and then they immediately lean against the sides of the ambulance. I'm a pig searching for truffles, Craig. I'm not (laughs) going to criticise too much when I find. What was earthed? That's my question. It's on rubber tires. He's in the air on the roof. What was earthed in order to complete the circuit? Anyway, cool move. Very nice. Made use of the ambulance. But what was earthed? Carry on. You wouldn't question it if it was in a good superhero film, to be fair. Yeah. 
the fact that it's the only sequence in that sequence that worked for me at all is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's just absolutely nuts. That's all the characterization you get for Ezekiel, really. He wants to prevent himself being murdered. A very relatable motivation. Apparently, he came from nothing and somehow amassed a fortune, but he's also cursed, whatever that means. Instead of just killing him, they cursed him, but that's because he's part of this destiny that Cassie has to play her part in. Also, he keeps the spider who bit him, even though that plays no part into it, because presumably he's already been bitten by it. Well, that's what I thought. The spider's going to bite these three girls. Yeah. No, doesn't. <laughs> okay. At some point, they are going to try and track him down. They are going to be bitten by the spiders. They are then going to come back and kill him with spider powers. Excellent. Is it the same spider? Has he been off breeding that spider? Does that spider just live for a very long period of time? <laughs> it was the 70s that he got the spider, and yeah. that spider is looking good for its age. What did he do to amass his fortune? The whole thing was, oh, we're going to study the spider, and we are going to make the money. The spider's still alive. What did you do? <laughs> Step one, spiders in the Peruvian Amazon. <laughs> Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. <laughs> and then at the end of the film, you see Ben keeping it in a habitat as a pet. He's like, I've got this pet spider. Yeah, uh, one day. One day it's going to do something, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, Adam Scott's Ben. I think he was the sort of bright spark in all of this. Anytime he was on screen, it's like, yeah, this guy's likable. He's just innately likable. Yeah. So if anyone's going to be a young Uncle Ben, then sure, it's this guy. If it is the Andrew Garfield universe, I can't see how he edges into Martin Sheen. I can kind of see, you know, he lets himself go a little bit. He becomes a bit more Massachusetts-esque. Scott is interesting because I'm primarily familiar with Scott playing jerks. Step Brothers is the big one for me, for example. It was Parks and Rec for me. Ah, okay. So that's maybe where the difference is between the two of us, where the gulf exists. But I thought that he was very good here. And again, he plays decency very, very well to his credit. Yeah, for the few scenes that he's in. He disappears for large swathes of the film. Can you blame him? <laughs> I did like the line where Cassie said, oh, this is the only time you've been shot at in Queens. It won't be the last time you get shot at in Queens. He's a veteran as well. He's not only a paramedic. This is the Uncle Ben mythology that's building up, <laughs> where he can't just be a paramedic. He has to have served in the armed forces as well, because he has to be a real American hero. <laughs> And of course, his brother is implied to be off on spy missions, where Mary's like, oh, he's out of the country. On a stag do in this timeline. <laughs> is it a stag do? Do they say it's a stag do? Okay. No, no, that's my head cannon. When he just goes, she's off away. You're saying spy missions. I'm saying <laughs> stag do. <laughs> the secret is Ben is the good brother. <laughs> <laughs> Richard was kind of an asshole, but he's dead, so we don't talk about it too much. <laughs> We made stuff up to make you feel better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. The secret is that Ben is Peter's real father because Richard's out of the country a lot. Ben's <laughs> always there for her. <laughs> Scandal. There's the dirt on him. That is why you would be the J. Michael Straczynski of the 21st century there. Or I suppose actually <laughs> did right in the early 2000s of the 2020s. That's my big twist. Daddy Ben. Why not? Another question is, how did they get Emma Roberts to appear in this for three thankless scenes? I imagine the pitch was you play Spider-Man's mom. They just didn't tell her that they're never going to mention that it's Spider-Man. Oh my god, that is it. You say we're making a Terminator Spider-Man movie you're and you're Connor. Sarah Connor. <laughs> that is exactly the pitch. It's evil, but it's exactly the pitch. It just makes sense if that's the pitch where you do these things. But we've spoken about the monk before where we've questioned how do you get these actors to appear in these things who has the blackmail account at sony who is able to get all these people to appear in these films because there must be something they are seeing that we are not 
they're dangling their families over a volcano and it's, we will drop them in if you do not sign on to this film. I mean, they're being taken out for one hell of a lavish dinner and several drinks and then being presented <laughs> by the check to sign. At the end, I really question it because you do look and go, you're really good. Why did you pick this? And especially now that these films have come out, right? So we know what they're producing when they make the spadblunk films. So... It's not that you can pretend that, oh, well, this one. Ignore all the other ones. This one is the one. That's a good one. Can I actually push back a little bit on that, Chris? Because this is the thing that I find really interesting. This is the thing that I think kind of separates the sphere in which we are talking. And I want to be clear, we includes the three of us here, but anybody who is listening to this, where we are aware of how the industry works and the differences between the various companies. So we're aware of the fact that Sony and Marvel are different companies and Marvel and DC are different companies. The moment I remember is sitting down to watch Avengers Endgame with my mother because she had heard it was the biggest movie of all time. And she's watching it and after words like oh what did you think of it mom she's pretty good i just where was batman <laughs> and if you listen to the interviews that people give around these projects i think dakota johnson when she was asked what was it like to make madam webb she says well i talked to my good friend lizzie olsen about what it was like there is a non-zero chance that dakota johnson thinks she is in the mcu that she thinks she's in the same universe as not only tom holland spider-man but also all of the marvel pictures and if you're doing that even if you accept that people who work in the industry are theoretically aware of the difference between disney and sony as major studios dakota johnson i'm not entirely sure of that we'll talk about dakota johnson's interview persona when we get to it but sony made and distributed the three Tom Holland Spider-Man movies. And two of those movies made over a billion dollars apiece. And in fact, those two Tom Holland Spider-Man movies distributed by Sony are the last two films in the MCU to gross over a billion dollars. Keeping in mind that you, myself, and Craig are very much on the bleeding edge of paying attention to the finer details of all this, if you are somebody who is sitting down for a meeting in town and you don't care about superhero continuity that much, if you're Emma Roberts, it's like, yeah, Sony, you know the way that they have those Spider-Man movies? Like, yeah, I love those movies. The last two made over a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. Well, they want you to play, wait for this. They want you to play Spider-Man's mom. I can imagine how when you're sitting in that meeting or at that bar or at that barista table or whatever it is, you go, where do I sign? (laughs) (laughs) The last two Tom Holland Spider-Man movies made a billion dollars. I'm playing Spider-Man's mom. I am going to ride that gravy train. I can see how they get people on that. You make a fair point. It's an elaborate scam that Sony are running. Basically (laughs) what's going to happen is... The actors in this film and other films are going to come out with some kind of campaign. It's like, has you or any of your family ended up in a fake Marvel film? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Call this number and we'll help you out. Some sort of scene out of Hustle where they're sneaking <laughs> yeah. people into yeah. the Marvel offices, past all the big Avengers posters and everything, to side, dressed up as cleaners where they steal the office <laughs> first. <laughs> and then they bring their actor in and sign them up. They have a little cardboard cutout of Chris Hemsworth on a train set that goes around <laughs> inside a meeting room. To make it look like he's pacing. I hate that I'm going to say what I'm about to say, but to give the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters credit, it is worth noting Morbius is obviously a massive, massive flop, but the first Venom made, what, nearly $800 million worldwide, thanks to China? Did it not crack a billion? No, I don't think it did. I'm sure. Uh. 
Okay, well, you can fact check me on that. It made a lot of money. It made at least $750 million. We can agree on that. And then the second one outgrossed Eternals. The second one outgrossed the big Marvel Pictures release in that quarter of that year. Morbius flopped twice, so it all balances out. <laughs> but I do think that if you're making a commercial case to somebody, you're like, yeah, it's Venom. And I don't know who Venom is, but I also don't know who the Eternals are. I don't know who Captain Marvel was. I don't know who Black Panther was before the movie came out. But you tell me the name and you tell me the number of dollars that that name made sure why not i'll do it yeah sorry that's my very cynical this scam thing seems like an avenue worth pursuing if they're just <laughs> telling people that they're in the mcu and they're just yeah. not or we're having talks about merging you in at some point. Not correcting them, to be clear. Maybe not correcting them. When Dakota's like, I'm going to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, you are going to be playing a Marvel character, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't lie. We just didn't clarify what we were talking about. <laughs> You'll be in a cinematic universe of Marvel characters. Maybe. No, no, it is a universe. We're not sure how it relates to all the other universes, but it is a universe. <laughs> It's Marvel, but with two L's at the end. (laughs) And you have signed me for three of these, right? (laughs) There is probably something in that, the selling it to them, but it's still baffling that they would end up seeing the script and thinking, this looks like something that's worth my time. Okay, this is the Dakota Johnson thing I wanted to bring up. The press tour for this has been a masterpiece of theatre. The press tour for this is worth this. Dakota Johnson sitting down and saying, if she were to be put on a team with any other Marvel characters, she'd pick the ones who are good at physical stuff, I guess. I don't know any of them. Or the, can you name the previous three Spider-Man movies? And it's like, Spider-Man and the Goblet of Fire. (laughs) The press tour for this is a delight, but the thing is that during it, to her credit, Johnson has actually talked about what it is like to work in the industry today, where she's talking about like making an independent movie, Daddio, which I think was sold at Sundance and is yet to be released, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which she produced, which just disappeared onto streaming, Am I Okay, which she made in 2022 which sold to HBO Max and has not been released. It has not even been dated for release. The vibe you get when you look at Dakota Johnson's press tour for this, and arguably the vibe you get when you look at her acting in this, I think I described it as a vibe that can best be summed up as, has the check cleared yet? (laughs) But this idea of Dakota Johnson being like, well, look, I am trying to be an indie actor. I am trying to support directors and projects that I care about. I am doing all of this work. And not only is it not being noticed, not only is it not getting great reviews, but it's not even being seen. It's not possible to watch a movie I made two or three years ago. So of course, when somebody offers me a blockbuster role, I'll take whatever it is because that's the only thing that there seems to be. Johnson's talked about not really enjoying making this where she's like, they yell the word explosion at you and you have to pretend there's an explosion while you're (laughs) locked in a blue box. I don't know how you do that. I do think it's a reflection of the industry being where it is. Do we think Emma Roberts for her three scene role as Mary Parker probably got paid more for this than she got paid for, say, Nerve, for example, Hmm. or any other of her big projects. American Horror Story, maybe? I don't know. And then you look at, say, the trajectory of Andrew Garfield's career. He made a ton of money playing Spider-Man in films that are very much maligned, but they have their fans. And obviously he's done really well out of it in terms of people warming to his portrayal at the very least. But he made the Spider-Man money and then he just went away and just did weird indie stuff. So that put enough money in the bank for him to do whatever he wants. And 
Well, that's Robert Pattinson's thing as well. Maybe Dakota Johnson had that mentality as well. This will give me a good nest egg and then I can pick cheaper projects that I'm not going to get paid very much for. And again, picking a project that's S.J. Clarkson directing it, which is a woman director, which is rare enough in superhero films. She has talked a lot about how she likes working with Clarkson. And I do wonder if that was part of the pitch as well, where it's you'll get to work with a female director on a project like this. And if you are somebody who is committed to making the industry more equitable, that's a fairly nice carrot to dangle in front of you to lure you to sign on, I think. Did she not say she fired her agent after this, though? There is some controversy over that where this was over Daddio. I think the Hollywood Reporter suspects it suggested it was just coincidental timing, <laughs> but the agency that she had moved to was also repping the film Daddio, which is, I believe, the taxi cab movie she made with Sean Penn. But yeah, basically she did part ways with her agency the week after the trailer for this release, which is <laughs> very funny to imagine the conversation as that happened. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to suck. You're fired. (laughs) You told me this was an MCU film. You're fired. To be clear, she has not seen the trailer because have you seen that wonderful interview where the guy from the Huffington Post tries to press her on the he was with my mother in the Amazon when she was looking for spiders before she died. He's like, have you seen that? No. Have you seen any of the internet reaction to it? No. Well, it's gone kind of viral. And it's like, oh, why has it gone viral? (laughs) (laughs) just this really awkward conversation where he can't say because people think it's really stupid and people think the line delivery is unnatural because she's sitting in the chair opposite him and just looking at him going what did people i think he says because people thought that the sentence sounded weird out of context and then she goes but doesn't every sentence sound weird out of context it's the most delightful piece of performance art i have ever seen it's incredible i recommend checking it out put it in the show notes absolutely i will look that up i've seen some stuff but not all of it let's talk about the three spider women we'll come back to the state of the industry later we'll end on that downer about how we're all doomed to watch an endless stream of stuff like this for the rest of our lives because no one learns any lessons from them but anyway we'll get to that On a positive note, the three spider women, I've summed them up as having one main character trait each because that's all they have. So you have Julia Cornwall, who is supposed to be Julia Carpenter, which I presume is her mother's name. It's not said in the film, though. I don't know if there was some cut reveal of her real surname at some point in the film. I suspect there must have been. For all the Julia Carpenter fans in the audience going, yeah, we're back, baby. (laughs) Are we going to get that Iron Man Force Works film with her in it? Nope, not going to happen. That moment where she goes visit her father's estate after he dies and collect the will is like, you should use your birth surname. It's very sweet. Carpenter. (laughs) (laughs) I put her character trait as naive. We have Matty Franklin, who is a young spider girl who is the most recent character, I believe, of the three. Edgy skater girl. That's her one trait. And the last one, Anya Corazon, is good at math. That's all she is. She is good at math. (laughs) Well, she is also a character facing deportation, so she's the kind of grounded, serious leader one. She's the one who has actual responsibility on her shoulders. It's mentioned in one line in that scene where they're in the motel and says, everyone, let's tell each other our backstories. Exposit, please. We've got to this point. (laughs) The audience need to feel invested in you. Quick, story, now you, story, now you, story. Great, the audience are in, let's move on. And it's set up with the beautiful justification of Cassie saying, I'm going to take you back to our parents. And they all say, you can't take us back to our parents because of our backstories that we will now explain. And and you have Julia's who's like, my dad doesn't want me or something, so I was going to run away and stay with friends. And then Matty's like, my dad's a rich guy who pollutes the ocean and doesn't care about the fact that I exist. And then Anya's, yeah, my dad's deported. I tell our landlord every day to come back tomorrow and he falls for it. 
every single day. They could have had Mr. Dikovich in that scene, couldn't they? Just rent. <laughs> Don't give them ideas, Craig. I would have loved that cameo if that was him. The only one that really has any personality here is Julia, who's the one played by Cindy Sweeney. She's the one who's positioned at the center of the shots. She's the one who's played by the star who is an actor. You mentioned, Chris, how you convince actors to be in movies like this. Part of me suspects that with Sydney Sweeney, it was Sony offering her a deal on anyone but you. We will make this rom-com with you if you agree to be the Spider-Woman. And the idea is you will be one of our stars. In the same way like Chalamet at Warner's has Wonka and Dune. We want to make a star. We want to keep you in-house. But yeah, Julia's thing is to be fair to be true to the time period in which this movie is set. She's a very 2000s idea of a nerd. We take this incredibly beautiful sex symbol of a woman, we put a loose baggy sweater on her, and we put a set of big nerdy glasses on her, and nobody can imagine that she might be pretty underneath it all. <laughs> and it's really strange, because that effort literally stops at the waist. She has a pleated thigh-length skirt and knee-high socks. And there is a moment, unironically, for listeners, I'm guessing there are listeners who have not seen, just based on the box office, Madam Web. I am not making this up. There is a scene halfway through the movie where they're in a diner, and they're talking to boys for the first time, and Toxic is playing on the radio. And I believe it's Matty who takes off Julia's glasses, unfurls her baggy sweater, and not it up so that you can see her navel and julia basically goes oh my god i'm suddenly pretty and the next time you see her she is dancing on top of a table surrounded by an audience of young boys who finally 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 can see that sydney sweeney is as beautiful on the outside as she is on the inside <laughs> it is staggering it is very much like this is a movie from 2003 for all of these scenes and diner staff who do nothing about it as well. Diner staff are like, yeah, we're fine. A nerd girl's discovering she's hot. <laughs> can't interrupt that. <laughs> we can't get in the way of that empowerment story. This is her moment. She's girl bossing so hard over there. She's doing a feminism, says the middle-aged man behind the counter. Says the Sony executive puffing on a cigar. <laughs> the setup to that scene was so weird as well. You have Matty and... Anya arguing about something and she's so distracted by the boys in the corner that she's not listening to them and it's no boy has ever shown me attention before <laughs> for some reason these guys at a random diner are and we're all also trying to outrun a murderer so we probably shouldn't <laughs> be interacting with strangers but we're what's the words that Cassie uses impulsive and entitled teenagers so that's the kind of stuff we do. Yeah, it's very much that vibe of take the glasses off, run a brush through her hair, and suddenly she's hot. As if she wasn't Sydney Sweeney before this, and if she won't be Sydney Sweeney after this. And then immediately afterwards, she is shamed for it as well, which is quite something on the movie's behalf. <laughs> she immediately apologizes to Cassie for being hot. She's like, I'm sorry I was hot for two minutes of this movie. It's a very strange movie. For all that this purports to be a feminist movie to a certain extent, it has those vibes of women empowerment kind of stuff going on. There's something very retrograde in Sydney Sweeney discovers she is hot, but do not worry, she is punished for it. <laughs> I actually thought she looked very young as well. I felt like the film was made like five years ago or something, because if you look at her in, say, Anyone But You, she looks her age. She looks mid-twenties, but in this, I don't think she quite looked teenage, whatever age she was supposed to be, but she looked a good deal younger than in a film that I also saw her in this year. At least Isabella Merced will get to play Hawk Girl soon, so she might be redeemed from all this. When is she playing Hawk Girl? She's going to be in Superman. That's oh, okay. All right. How long do we think that DC... Sorry, this is a separate conversation. <laughs> How long do we think that DCU is going to last, just in terms of Warner's shareholders? Well, I don't know. That's a separate state of the industry conversation, isn't it? That's fair. So the three Spider-Women, they have that one defining trait, but that's it. It's so weird because there are 
setups that seem tailor-made to do character development, as in, I'm going to leave you in the woods for three hours, as crazy a decision as that is for an <laughs> adult to make. I know there's a murderer after you. I'm going to leave you in these woods for three hours, and it will be three hours. Luckily, no movie has ever involved women being terrorized by a strange man in the middle of the woods, so we're okay. Sydney Sweeney says it. She says, not unlike the opening of a horror film. <laughs> yeah. But that's a prime moment for them to bond, isn't it? They're stuck, and they can do nothing but talk. But then you cut away to Cassie looking at her backstory, and then when you cut back to them, let's go to this diner that was half a mile up the road. And to be clear, Cassie leaves them alone to go back to her apartment and jump on a wall. <laughs> Just to put this in perspective. <laughs> It's not something Cassie couldn't have done with them. It's as if Cassie had to go do something sensitive or adult-appropriate or dangerous. She goes to her own apartment and tries to climb a wall like she's Spider-Man. It's a big assumption that, oh, don't worry, he's only looking for you free. He's not decided to look for me yet. And you think, God, that's really stupid. And then it cuts to the character going, hey, boss, I was thinking maybe you should look for the woman. And you're like, what? Well, it turns out that assumption was correct because Ezekiel says, I'm not interested in the person that's protecting them. I take it back, Cassie. You were right all along. I was the idiot. (laughs) While she's in the taxi, isn't there an APB out for her with the girls as well? Yeah, but they just describe her as a a woman in her early 30s, which could be anybody. She's not associated with a nerdy girl, a girl whose father was recently deported, and a girl (laughs) with a skateboard. If you see those four women together, call your local police. (laughs) Love the idea that that means that she could ferry them one at a time across town, like a riddle where you have to get the duck, the bag of corn, and the fox across. (laughs) How far out of town has she gone? New York is New Jersey. It says it in the film all the way to New Jersey. It's pretty darn big. That's impressive commute with the police <laughs> chasing you in a taxi with a big number on the roof that's easily identifiable. And later on, like you say, Spider-Man shaped dent in it. <laughs> what happened? Well, we had them up until they came out of the subway station and then they stole a taxi. Okay, well, let's look for the taxi as well. No, no, no. We'll just put a, a briefing out that says it's the women and free girls. Don't mention the taxi. That'll make it too easy. And they escaped into Manhattan traffic. Also, don't try to call that taxi's radio that it has. (laughs) No one tried to do any common sense stuff like that. In fact, Ezekiel, who can hack into anything, apparently, couldn't contact the radio of that taxi. But only has one staff member, despite presumably being a multimillionaire. He pays her a fortune, though. He can't afford another one. Fair. It could get patched into the local police department, though. He could get that. He couldn't get onto the taxi. Again, this is the thing. Where this movie spends its energy explaining stuff, like the chest compressions, it sets up the chest compressions and pays those off the climax. The bit where it spends a solid minute on, there's an APB out, they've spotted her at a diner. So they have a sequence of Ezekiel getting in the car, calling them to cancel the APB or to call the alert and say, it's okay, it was nothing, and then drive off. It's nice to have that explained, even though you could just have the police arrive later than he does for some reason or whatever that is where we are expending energy that is the plot hole that we need to cover the only question audiences will have after watching Madame Webb is how come the police didn't get to that diner before he did (laughs) well you have the Daily Bugle rushing out in addition three or four hours after (laughs) the kidnapping appeared and it's on the front page but there's no picture of the missing girls despite that some guy in the diner says that looks like three teenagers 
I'm going to call because I have enough information to conclude that that is the people that are missing because teenagers never come into diners. I mean, it does say a nerdy one, a daughter of a deported man and a girl with a skateboard. It all checks out. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. So then this guy in the diner calls the police. I don't know. That nerdy one looks pretty hot, though. His partner says, fair, fair. Don't call. One of them's clearly attractive. We didn't think she was a minute ago, but she is now. So great. Again, it's another crazy decision that the film makes around these things. And the diner action sequence with Toxic, and that's a fake-out vision again, because of course it is. (laughs) Having to listen to Toxic twice. (laughs) (laughs) It's when the radio is winking out and Cassie's hitting it to try and get it to work. It's as if I can't hear the song. I don't know how much time I have left. The thing is, the second time, the song is longer it plays for even longer <laughs> yeah, yeah the same amount of time hasn't passed that happened the last time round. so now they should already be dead by the time you get there this doesn't work yeah none of it works none of it works at all that feels like the takeaway from talking about madam web none of it works <laughs> none of it works that could be a nice summary there we go craig the podcast is going to be very short that's it we just agree that it doesn't work and we all go home doesn't work and then we're done that's the pull quote on the poster none of it works yeah. <laughs> the thing is though, in theory when you have these three actors and if you have them playing those three different spider women that's great casting yeah. for those characters you can imagine sydney sweeney leading a spider woman film yeah. By herself. You can imagine any of them, really. But particularly Sydney Sweeney, because she's on the... The up and up. She's a movie star. She's at the crest of her career, supposed to be, at this point in time. Yeah. Her and Glenn Powell are kind of like those movie stars who are cresting appropriately enough for anyone but you. But yeah, you feel like with the right push, they could be stars. Yeah. The ingredients that they have, the cast that they've got, if we're putting the cast as the ingredients, and even the director in there is all the ingredients, it's the recipe that's wrong. The way it's put together and combined is not right. Yeah, you could see those three doing a Spider-Woman team-up thing. You could absolutely do that. Some sort of horror, Spider-Man twist, Terminator thing. I could absolutely see that. That would have been a great film if that was the one they made. You could even do the someone having strange visions of the future, or even quite a fun, if you're going to play it to the other end of the scale. If you had Cassie constantly trying to solve the problem that these girls keep getting killed and she's getting more and more frustrated every time it happens. <laughs> like Final Destination. Like a Final Destination silly comedy thing where just it keeps escalating every time she thinks she's got them safe and she walks off. <laughs> Ezekiel's back doing something else and she's like, how come this keeps happening? And it just escalates into nonsense. I'd be for that film as well. But you don't get that it just doesn't work Rick. no you mentioned the director there it is worth saying that clarkson is one of those directors who has been circling the superhero genre for what feels like forever also she was going to direct a star trek film that they were never going to make that's the thing clarkson feels like a director who has been on the edge of a big directorial project forever She's done Jessica Jones, she directed large portions of that, she did Life on Mars for the BBC. She's a very good television director, and her name keeps coming up in relation to various projects. And in particular, to fix projects that have run awry. You mentioned the fourth Star Trek movie, the fourth J.J. Abrams Universe movie, she was listed for that at one point. She was on the shortlist of candidates to replace James Gunn on Guardians 3, along with Jane Campion, which is one of the most delightful superhero fantasy directing casts I have ever heard. She was also, I think, attached to what became No Time to die after Danny Boyle 
left there as well. She is a director who clearly people in Hollywood respect and like, and who is based on her work incredibly talented. But it just feels so unfortunate that she gets her shot. And it's this. I feel so bad for her because this is a career ender. This is basically like for Stuart Bard as a director after Star Trek Nemesis. This is something where she will never be given the keys to anything like this again. And it feels like a shame because nobody, I think, could have made this work. Or Jonathan Frakes after Thunderbirds killed his film career. Well, <laughs> yeah. Directing career, anyway. The Thunderbirds are clock stoppers. Thunderbirds was the one where... Oh, Thunderbirds was the one that definitely did it. <laughs> he talks about after Thunderbirds, when his name gets mentioned, it's like, now nah, we're not letting him go anywhere near it. We learned from that mistake. Hit the brakes on Frakes. <laughs> <laughs> but with the fact that S.J. Clarks is a female director as well, they get one chance to fail, don't yeah. they? And then that's it. And the failure doesn't even have to be their fault. Yeah. They make a film, it turns out to be unsuccessful or bad. And they never get to make another one. If Wonder Woman had been bad, Patty Jenkins would have probably never worked again. What took her 10 years after making Monster to get to make another movie? And it was Wonder Woman. And then Wonder Woman 1984, which came out during the pandemic. And whatever about the movie's reception. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's not great, but is not the worst thing I have ever seen. And also performed reasonably well in the context of a global pandemic. But she immediately loses her Star Wars project, which is a shame. Yeah, so this will be a career ender for S.J. Clarkson. Which is a shame. But like I said earlier, she probably handed something in after shooting it that was then taken off her and turned into this. Or noted to death as well. If you're a director who doesn't have that level of clout, you can't exactly storm off and say, no, this is an S.J. Clarkson picture. Thank you very much. <laughs> you don't get final cut on this. This is a stupid idea. I'm not going to do it. It's like, okay, <laughs> yeah. well, we'll get someone who will. See you yeah. later. All these scenes you shot, yeah, what we're going to do, we're just going to ADR over your villain <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the entire thing. Yeah. You know how you kind of set it in the 90s? It's the 2000s now. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, where did my film go? You know what the great thing about visual effects artists is? They respond to executive emails just as easily as directors. <laughs> How are you going to change it to be 2003 when it was once 1993? Well, we've got an extra with a PSP. We're just going to shove it in one of the scenes. And don't worry, it'll be during a confusing vision anyway. So it's not expected to make sense. And again, that's the thing. This is not the point of this podcast or discussion but i think a lot about kurt anderson's argument about how fashion and culture kind of stopped in the 90s if you take somebody from 1963 and put them next to somebody from 1973 you immediately know that they're from different decades 1973 1983 same vibe 83 93 you know exactly which is from which but around about like 97 98 culture just kind of freezes <laughs> you could tell me madam webb was set in 2016 <laughs> and I would believe you. Yeah, because there's been no big fashion trends, not even in the 90s, but the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you can tell how people are dressed, but you can set anything from the 90s and beyond, and other than technology and whatever cars are there, you can get away with it. I suppose the closest is phones, isn't it? Yes. The proliferation of smartphones and things can kind of date it. Your music that you play in the background, you can try and you swing. You can do that in post, yeah. Exactly. All that can be done in post. And even then you can go, oh, they're more of a retro person. They don't use a phone all the time. It's just one of those conceits. People don't have the rings. Hey, everybody loves four non-blondes and the cranberries. <laughs> they're always relevant, right? And then it's a comic book movie. So even if you set it in the past, you can have technology that no one had at the time, like the NSA tech, which wouldn't have existed in that way at that time, but it can because it's a comic book movie. And be under the control of precisely one person as well, who the NSA apparently have no interest in keeping track of. <laughs> hey, she was the only person who could access this system that can track anybody in the United States. You think we should check up on that? Nah, she's probably just taking a long week. You know how she gets after the opera week? Taking a week off after the opera, but she's still logged in. We can see her in the system. <laughs> well, that's awfully weird, isn't it? 
<laughs> Maybe we should look into it. No, no, let's not. Even that, woman in the chair, watching all the cameras, doing all the stuff. No mention of that later. Gone. No comeuppance. What happened? Did she walk off with the NSA tech afterwards? Did she now rule a small country somewhere? We don't know. Craig can probably correct me on this. Again, this is one of those how a movie normally functions and the visual language of this movie. There are sequences as it gets towards her last appearances where it seems like she's having doubts. Yeah. Where we close on her face and she kind of hesitates before she does what he asks. And it's, are we building to a moment where she helps the girls at the climax? Are we building towards a moment where he kills her and that's why she disappears from the movie? (laughs) None of those things happen. There's the bit of doubt where she goes, oh, I didn't realise we were looking for kids. You madman, when you said you were murdered by free women, I thought you meant free women, not free school kids, you absolute butter. You've really paid for me to look for free teenagers for you to kill. I could be working for Epstein. And we've got the exact profile from the vague description you gave us from the vision that you've been having of these three masked women. It's the pictures of Sydney Sweeney, Isabella Merced, and Celeste O'Connor. I am a very good describer. <laughs> well, the thing with Sydney Sweeney, it could be, I don't know, she's a blonde-haired girl white with blue eyes or whatever and then Ezekiel goes and kills a bunch of blonde girls but none of them is the one that he's looking for <laughs> again that would be the Terminator thing I do like the idea of him being like more nerdy less dirty more nerdy <laughs> <laughs> Does she look like she would dance on a table to Britney Spears Toxic? I don't think so. Got it wrong. I can't kill her. She's hot already. (laughs) When I was putting together this agenda, I laughably came up with some potential themes that the film could have. And one of them was the fear of technology and how it would be abused by authority. Because it does seem very pointed that it's the NSA can track your every move. They made a whole film about it, Snowden. Snowden was a real guy that didn't like that that was possible. So I wonder if they were getting at this whole well, the government can track your every move. And what if a serial killer could do it? It'd be about the same as if the government could track your every move, it turns out. What if it was a psychic man who dressed up like a spider? (laughs) But we can't call him a Spider-Man. Whatever you do. Whatever you do, do not say that word. Oh no, run in fear from (laughs) climb on walls person. He's like a spider person. It's like when Smallville would introduce a DC character, but they weren't allowed to say the actual name of the character because Warner Brothers were like, we're going to make a film about them pretty soon. So the Flash became Impulse in Smallville, for example. (laughs) It's almost like that, but it's not that because Sony have the final say on whether they can say these things. But I don't think the film's doing anything with that idea. It's not a cautionary tale about surveillance states or anything like that. It's just something that you could potentially draw a line to. I do love the idea of Dakota Johnson and S.J. Clarkson sitting down for an interview and being like, we thought we were making a precinct commentary on the modern security state. (laughs) It's all in there. People need to know, and we need to be able to talk about this stuff. Finally. I like them having like a D20 or something that they roll on the table and they go, what are we saying that the film's about in this interview? (laughs) On this one, we're going to say it's the fear of technology. And in the next one, we're going to say it's post-war horror. (laughs) (laughs) Every interview, just a different... Different theme, yeah. Yeah. It's multi-layered, or not layered at all. You decide. Another one is destiny versus self-actualization, where it's destiny that wins, actually. Usually it's, you can't resist your destiny. Yes, I can. Then character resists destiny. Not in this. I mean, he does resist destiny. He doesn't die exactly as he foresees himself dying, right? But the big reveal is, this was always his destiny. Your destiny wasn't the one that you've been seeing every day. Your destiny is this. That feels like something that somebody would say to you if they wanted you to believe that you hadn't changed your destiny. (laughs) All those other Destiny visions you saw were fake. My Destiny was the real Destiny, and it was always... 
always waiting for you and I was right. And also there are three of me for some reason because that's my powers now. Because they're going to put me in a wheelchair for Madam Web 2 and Madam Web 3. And Dakota Johnson doesn't want to be sitting in a wheelchair like Patrick Stewart for all of those movies. <laughs> There's also other little bits such as when it said Ben is loving being an uncle, all of the fun and none of the responsibility. And it's, that's what he thinks. Well, she doesn't even say it that cheekily either. It's just flat. You mentioned that the reverse engineering of the when you accept responsibility, great power will follow. It's the reverse engineering of the Spider-Man brand. What if we took the basic concept of Spider-Man, turned it inside out, and that was the movie? <laughs> what if we put the cart before the horse in every possible sense, including catchphrase construction? <laughs> <laughs> so the acceptance of destiny thing, or the fact that there's nothing you can do about it, because Cassie's the only one that can change the future, apparently. So why is she just accepted that Peter's parents are going to die in a plane crash, or that Ben's going to be shot and murdered? Or that the US is going to invade Iraq on belief that there's weapons of mass destruction in there. There's a lot of stuff Cassie could be doing around this time. No, no, no. Her visions are only limited to Spider-Man related stuff. That's the only future <laughs> she could see. <laughs> Somebody on Twitter pointed out that many of her early visions involve death, except for the one where she imagines herself being arrested by the NYPD, which implies <laughs> that she knows she's going to die in NYPD custody. <laughs> <laughs> that is not my observation. I saw that on Twitter, so I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Very neat. She's just accepted this grim destiny for the Parkers, I guess. The, the fact that they all die, apart from Peter. Here's a question. If Mary Parker hadn't made her play those stupid baby shower games, do you think she would have intervened then? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. I'll show you. You're going to die in a fiery plane crash. <laughs> yeah, remember when you made me take part in that stupid game? Well, joke's on you now. <laughs> Ben and his carefree attitude. Let me give you some responsibility. Maybe next time I ask you for a beer, you won't hand me a Pepsi. <laughs> that would actually be a great line at the baby shower. If Cassie had been embarrassed by Mary in some way and she said, well, you know how they say that flying is the safest way to travel? Maybe not. And then she just leaves it there. That goes beyond implying that she sees Mary's going to die in a plane crash. <laughs> I know. Just suggesting that she is going to cause a plane crash. Well, that's the <laughs> That's why she knows it's going to happen. <laughs> That's Unbreakable. That is literally the plot of Unbreakable. <laughs> Another thing with Spider-Man, they say that the Spider-Women throw Ezekiel out a window 10 years in the future. Peter's not going to become Spider-Man for about 15 years. So does that mean these Spider-Women will have been active for about, say, 10 years by the time Spider-Man shows up? So he's showing up in a very crowded spider marketplace by the time he makes his debut. And there's an entire tribe in the Amazon by that point, <laughs> mate. I mean, there's a lot of them. Peter Parker sending cease and desist letters. <laughs> there's a lot going on by the time Peter comes around. That's the thing, though, with the whole timeline element of it. You're going, how is this supposed to have fit anything? I'm trying to figure it out. Because like you say, by the time he comes around, the Spider-Man just gave up for a bit. They disappeared for five years. Everyone forgot and moved on. We threw that guy out the window. We're done. Threw that guy out the window. We're done. Daily Bugle was very much like, no point in running any articles on this. We're absolutely fine with spider people. Oh my God. That's why Jonah hates Spider-Man so much. He's infringing on his favorite niece's copyright. <laughs> that was her thing. <laughs> she used to love it. She used to love it so much. Now there's no joy in her life. Or he wears the same costume of the guy that tried to kill his favorite niece. Fair point. 15 years ago. See, it all makes sense. <laughs> it all fits together. I can't remember if Jonah Jameson was Matty Franklin's uncle in the comics. I don't think he was. I believe he is. Okay, I don't really remember. 
she doesn't have spider powers either. Technology, isn't it? It was this weird cult thing that Norman Osborn went to called The Gathering of Five, and there was five gifts to be bestowed on. One of them was power, one of them was insanity. Osborn got the insanity because that's what ah. he needs. And Matty got the power, and she can fly and stuff. She just adopts this spider motif. Okay. Remember. And again, I love that they could not convince J.K. Simmons to reprise the role here. They couldn't <laughs> even get that Simmons who will do anything. Well, he wouldn't do The Amazing Spider-Man 2, would he? He was an email in that. Fair, but he's, he's done Spider-Verse movies. So you have to imagine there, like, you can just be a voice on the phone. Yeah. Then they'd have to explain why he doesn't do anything. Help, uncle, I've been kidnapped by a crazy paramedic lady in a red leather jacket. That's important. Very important that you remember that she's spider-themed as well, because this will come up later. You're going to want to be angry at anybody who reminds you in any way of this spider theme that is happening right now. Another theme that I went for was grief and connection. That's clearly in there. Cassie's sort of grieving over the loss of her mother, but not really. She is and she isn't. Sometimes she is, depends on the scene. And she grieves over her friend who has one line that gets killed because he isn't looking where he's going when he's driving. Mike Epsep as O'Neill. Yes. That scene is so weirdly framed. He drives away in the ambulance and then a truck plows into him. But if he'd just looked, you would have seen that coming. Again, that's your destiny point that you're making right there. Sometimes the truck is just heading towards you and there's nothing you can do about it. That is one of the things that I remember thinking because of how that is shot, that is such a final destination shot where he gets in and she walks away and then he gets plowed by the truck. That was one of the things where this is competently directed so I know exactly what is going to happen and how, which is somewhat counterintuitive because that should be a jump scare. But the fact that you are in this movie that looks like it has been edited on crack cocaine, the fact that you are holding this shot long enough for me to see the ambulance make its way from the foreground to the crossroads just down the road tells me something is going to happen at that crossroads. And it's because an ambulance driver can't look both ways before approaching a junction. Is it worth just acknowledging if we're going to be very generous to this movie, and I feel like I've been very mean, so I will be very generous to this movie, post-pandemic movie about paramedics and doing chest compression, making that a key plot point in it, which is quite good, and the fact that this is ostensibly, obviously not in reality based on its box office returns, but is ostensibly aimed at young women and young people teaching them CPR, presumably and celebrating how great paramedics are and treating Ben's career as a paramedic as equivalent to how soldiers are generally treated in US pop culture as a service that is a general good. That is something that I quite like about the movie and think is commendable. I think the movie itself is terrible and I wish the movie around that idea were better, but I do think there is something interesting there, maybe. I did like the chest compression teaching scene, actually. It was one of the few genuine connection moments that existed. And I don't know chest compression, I probably should, but it feels like they talk about it pretty well. You want to maintain the rhythm, you want to have somebody with you so you, if you get tired you can swap over and in the rhythm. You want to push so hard that you feel this. This feels like actual useful information for me to retain about the process of giving chest compression if I'm ever with somebody who needs it. It does come after she's like, I'm poisoned but I'm okay for some reason. Is it the amount of time he grips you the worse it gets or something? Yeah. Because she knows that. I was that. sick, but I got better. And I know this for reasons. <laughs> Just her hand hurts a couple of times and then that's it. It never goes into, is it cumulative? So if he grabs her again, does that start over from zero or does it add on? Does it compound? How exactly does the poison work? I don't know. You shouldn't really care. Don't worry about it, says Dakota Johnson, looking at the camera. <laughs> the poison pointless. They don't do anything with it. Ezekiel could have 
actually made this really easy. If he finds out where these girls are and then he approaches them in the middle of a crowded place and just touches them. Yeah. And that's it. Job done. As opposed to walking through a crowded train <laughs> car, smashing their skulls, breaking their necks in a PG-13 movie. You don't hear the neck snap, but it is very obvious that he is snapping necks. <laughs> I quite admire the restraint where it's like, we can show him snapping it, but as long as there is no sound effect, it just looks like he's putting them to sleep very violently. Presumably a well-known businessman who has a lot of money so therefore has made that money somehow so people will know who he is just walking through going smash 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 (laughs) (laughs) isn't his plan to wait until they're all in the one place at the same time as well don't pick them off one at a time no i want the last one to see me coming (laughs) what just so happens they're all in the train station at the same time because they're held together by something a web if you will yeah. Also, he's a businessman, right? Couldn't he have invited them all for like an internship or something like that at his company and then just put his hand on their shoulder and then waited for them to die? Hired an assassin? It's the, I need to do this now thing. Oh, I've run the computer for five minutes and it's found them and they're all at this train station. He's like, I'm going to do it now. Are you going to plan? Are you going to investigate any further? Are you going to stalk them in some way? Yeah, you've got 10 years. You've got their home addresses. You've got like 10 years to work this out. You could be really creative and do it in a subtle way that no one will ever link to you. It's all good. No, no, no. Going now. I'm going to improv this. They don't know I'm coming. I've already taken off my shoes and I packed my spider murder suit. It's too late. I've already committed to You this. talk about Terminator. It's the Terminator Genesis logic. So we have a 10-year head start on this, but we're going to travel to the night before and just wing it. That's the only problem with Terminator Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another universe that Matt Smith's in that he's not very good in. So there's another connection. It's weird that they had Ezekiel be a rich businessman. I guess that was just so he had the resources in order to track them down. Obviously, it doesn't tell you what he's done to raise this money, but it could have been, I'm going to invite at least one of them for some work experience, and then I'll kill her when she's in my office. Great. Pay for an assassin. Do I do it yourself when you've got all that money? Send Julia a voucher for a makeover. She might like that. And then kill her in the salon that the voucher's for. Anything. But on the other hand, I've already (laughs) taken off my shoes and I have my spider murder costume right here, right now. (laughs) You make valid points, but... Do you have any idea how uncomfortable this thing is? I'm not putting it on again. It really rides up in the crotch. I've only got 10 years to do this. This might be my last chance. That's all I really had for themes, other than the standard Spider-Man stuff power and responsibility which comes up but like you say it's the wrong way around isn't it you accept responsibility and then you get great power no it's the other way around you get the great power and then you learn the responsibility that goes with it but again you're trying to create a mythology around spider-man you're basically trying to turn him into christ you're trying to turn him (laughs) into this holy scripture of spider-man principles and trying to fashion a universe around him where you're promising he will be here soon we promise the messiah will be here soon yeah and then it's The oddly specific, when you master your powers, you'll be able to be in more than one place at the same time. That's really handy. That's very specific. Thanks for telling me. I'll need to know this later. Cassandra Webb in the comics, Madam Webb in the comics, is a blind paraplegic. So we need something. We're only going to do that in the final shot of the movie. So don't worry, Dakota Johnson. But if you come back for the sequels, don't worry. We have a plot device ready to go (laughs) to explain why you won't spend most of the movie lying in a chair with contact lenses in making you deeply uncomfortable. Well, she gets the glasses, I suppose. Maybe that's more comfortable. At the very end, yeah. 
instead we'll have you on a blue screen for the entire thing acting against tennis balls on sticks yelling the word explosion at you (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna yell the word explosion a lot while you're in front of this blue screen and you're giving exposition to characters that you will never meet actors you will never work with it's going to be fantastic but good news you're not in the chair for the whole thing in the film you're with those other three spider women but in the studio you're not you're on your own technically at the time of you filming we've not cast any of them (laughs) just pretend it's tom holland or andrew garfield we have not decided yet (laughs) and it's sydney sweeney instead yeah (laughs) it was another spider-man illusion as well the whole i'm gonna give you the choice you can't save them all and then saves them all immediately it's not a problem which does kind of defeat the purpose. And again, that's the key thing with Spider-Man and Spider-Man not being able to save them all, to saving the ones he can. Although in the first Raimi Spider-Man film, he manages to save MJ and the cable car. So he has his cake and eats it too there too. Fair. It seems like one of these powers that's, oh, that was really convenient for the ending of this film. Let's never have that happen again because <laughs> otherwise it's going to be far too convenient. We have written something that solves so many problems that we must now never mention it ever happening ever again. But it's okay. You can just punch her in the stomach and the problem will go away. Oh, then it goes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did like that they, well, I'm going to say like, I didn't like, but I did notice that they tried to make use of the skills that they'd mentioned for the three spider women in that end fight, you had Matty slide on a bit of metal as if it was a skateboard, and you had Julia attempt to attack him because she knows Taekwondo. <laughs> but she just gets hit in the face and then it doesn't work. Anya doesn't do anything. She doesn't do any sums that help them in any way. <laughs> she probably calculates the weight of that pee as it drops. She does calculate how far apart Mary's... Com- yes, she does. That is the math space ability she uses in the car. They're getting shorter. Contractions, that's the word I was looking Contractions, for. Contractions, yeah. I was stuck in the word compressions. Sorry, that's my bad because of the chest compressions. So she does that, I suppose. But Ben decides to take them to the hospital because he couldn't just leave them in the house. That would be the logical thing to do. Again, that feels like it's reverse engineered. We don't know. This is me just speculating. If it was Terminator times Spider-Man, the plot was always going to be he tracks down pregnant Mary. So we can rewrite the movie, but we've already filmed the scenes where he's attacking the car with Emma Roberts in it. So I guess we're going to use the powers of post-production to make sure the three girls are in there as well. Sorry, this is a very depressing conversation about where cinema is and how you make a movie today i am fascinated to hear the actual story of this film getting made i know we are not going to hear it for maybe 10 15 years until people are like yeah i'm not going to be working in the industry anymore or i've moved on to a new space where i can talk about this now without fearing that it's going to end my future options and then we'll slowly hear the how this actually became a thing and what was originally going to be in there because at the moment everyone's going to be kind of tight-lipped aren't they they're not going to really tell oh well these are all the scenes that were in there except dakota johnson except they're not going to go full snyder and start releasing oh well actually what was going to happen is this and that and these other things the clarkson cut yeah here's all the costumes and here's all the other bits that i shot and here's my original script (laughs) this is the thing you mentioned johnson being able to talk about this johnson's able to talk about this because she is hollywood royalty she's second generation movie star she's the don johnson and melanie griffith this is a terrible thing to say but she has enough wealth that she is financially secure and she is not dependent on the industry so she can do things like talk about how much she hates starting in front of a blue screen and how much she wishes that she was talking to you about daddy-o instead of talking about madam webb whereas somebody like sydney sweeney who has not been subject to the same tour 
the same press promotion cycle that Johnson has, Sidney Sweeney is not a second generation star. She doesn't have the same security that Johnson does. She hasn't inherited wealth. She doesn't have the stability, the reliability. She isn't known in the industry that well. She's building her own star. Sweeney's talked about how she couldn't afford to take six months off work if she wanted to start a family. She does not have enough of a nest egg because they don't pay actors enough now to have that sort of job security. The deals you get in the back end aren't that secure. It was that The Defector did a really good article, I think, in 2022, and it specifically compared Johnson and Sweeney before they were both cast in Madam Web, which I thought was brilliant, where it's like Johnson posts on social media maybe once a month and it's always something inane and nonsensical and it looks like it might actually be a candid from her life, whereas Sweeney posts on social media every day and every second one of them is a paid promotion piece because she needs the income in order to continue to live. So that is one of the things about modern Hollywood. The reason that Johnson can be candid about this movie and nobody else involved in a can is because if they decide not to bring her back, perish the thought for Madam Web 2 or for whatever spider crossover they have planned after Craven the Hunter, that's fine. She can continue to work, she can continue to eat, she can continue to live. Whereas on the other hand, Sweeney has to pray that this will work. And Sweeney has also talked about how she is ready to franchise the hell out of anyone but you, even though that's not something you do with rom-coms. <laughs> rom-coms are not a genre that is franchisable, generally speaking. But she's like, no, we will make this work because it is the only ticket I have to financial security and stability because the industry is broken, which I sense we're going to talk about in a moment. And Sydney Sweeney stuck her toe in the producing pool as well, because that's a good way to keep guaranteed income coming in if you can get a producer credit on things that you're doing. So I guess that's what she's going to try and do. But yeah, you're right. There's this erroneous perception of actors in Hollywood and it's gotten better because of the strike. It's shone a light on it in a lot of ways as in here's how little we get paid for what we do. You might get paid a lot to work on this one show, but you spend some of that on your living expenses and whatever. And then when the show's over, you're a penniless actor auditioning again and you're back at square one. Some actors, they knock down the door to get them in stuff. Some actors, they just have to turn up at audition after audition and just hope for the best. And Sydney Sweeney, I guess she's in that place where she has to do that sometimes, but not all the time. Maybe she will be thought about for certain roles now that she's out there a bit more. But at the same time, she doesn't have the clout to turn her back on anything. She can't really say no to anything and she can't, like you say, rock the boat when she's in something. When Sony come to her and say, we want you to be the spider girl in Madam Web, and she's like, cool, do I get to wear a spider costume? And they say, for two and a yeah. half seconds. Yeah, she doesn't really have the clout to go, I don't really see why I would want to do that. She has to go, yeah, I, I would love to. You guys are still releasing anyone but you theatrically. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure we are. Of course we are. We'd never think about selling it to a streaming service. It's going to make way more money than this. That is the thing. You have to imagine in the meeting, Sydney Sweetie's agent is like, this is the meal ticket. Once you get your foot in the door at the spumunk you're cashing your own <laughs> checks baby the spumunk money keeps coming in <laughs> yeah and anyone but you will probably still be in theaters in june and this will be forgotten yes yeah it's interesting i've seen anyone but you i thought it was actually a pretty below average rom-com but you know there's clearly an appetite for it even if it is here's a bunch of attractive people in a very picturesque location because there's so few of them there's so few rom-coms that any rom-com is like manna from heaven anything feels like it's a treat and a delight because it is different from so much of what is out there is the thing like that's the thing with dune dune 2 which is opening and i'm kind of hoping that it'll do very well it is tracking phenomenally part of me wants to believe it's tracking phenomenally because people love the original Dune, but part of me also suspects the reality is it's tracking phenomenally because there has been nothing in cinemas. <laughs> people will go and see that because it is the only option to them for the next month and a bit. Which is kind of an old school approach, isn't it? You had the one blockbuster 
over a period of time. Yeah, which is arguably a healthier approach. Well, certainly healthier financially. Well, back before they sunk all their money into these things. <laughs> it's crazy that we live in a world where a single financial flop is an existential threat to a gigantic studio. Where it makes more business sense for Warners to write off Coyote versus Acme or Batgirl than it is to take a chance on it potentially being a massive success. There are plenty of cases where movies that they expected to flop did well. I think Barbie, they expected The Flash to be their biggest hit last year. And Barbie was a cinematic spite house. Barbie was released on the Nolan weekend as a screw you to their former part. We are totally over you, Chris. We don't think about you at all. It just so happens we're releasing Barbie on your favourite weekend of the year. Don't give it any thought because we certainly didn't. But it does feel like to live in a world where Warners would rather just accept the cash write-off on Coyote vs. Acme, is it Scoob? Holiday Haunts, all those movies, rather than just take the chance that one of them or two of them could break out and make a profit that would cover the rest of them. It's insane. In Coyote versus Acme as well, you had studios or Netflix and so on offering like 60 million for it and they said, no, the number's 75 <laughs> or we're deleting it forever. <laughs> <laughs> Which is insane because it's 50 to profit. The level of greed involved where it's like, we will accept that we do not make any profit. I was like, no, we will accept we make 50% profit on it or nothing. <laughs> I would absolutely love for someone to buy Coyote versus Acme, put it in theatres and it makes like $600 million. And then Warners are sitting there thinking, oh crap. The cult classic Coyote <laughs> v Acme. <laughs> I mean, somebody's pointed out that Mr. Beast could technically do that. <laughs> And that brings us on to the broader context of this film and the system that allows it to exist. You've talked several times, Darren, about the whole IP maintenance that gets something like this to exist. It may start out with, this Madam Webb's quite an interesting character. I would like to write a script about this character that details her origin. And then it gets warped so heavily over a period of time that the end result is this. I've read a lot of stuff and seen a lot of stuff where people are talking about how the studio head's don't watch films or even like films and funnily enough with this they come from being the head of things like soft drink companies so they don't understand how the industry works but they do understand people like the cool refreshing taste of pepsi <laughs> but then they're throwing note after note because it's something they'd like to see but it doesn't make sense in the context of the film but it's not even something they'd like to see it's something they think audiences would conceptually like to see because audiences are consumers how often do we hear about oh we gave it to a test audience and the test audience fed back blah 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 did anyone see this before it went out isn't that the system that's supposed to ring a bell and make alarms go off somewhere and blaze horns and people go whoa that's bad maybe fix that instead it seems this one went way past that filter the thing about test audiences from talking to people and from reading accounts of it is that first of all they're often brandished as weapons by studios where, like if you want to keep a director in line you send them to screen in front of a test audience and you selectively pick the feedback because you ask random people to come to a test screening and you will get the most absurd nonsense written on your test response sheets <laughs> The one I think about, the one that haunts my dreams, is Halloween Resurrection, which is the Halloween movie starring Busta Rhymes. And by most accounts, Busta Rhymes is the worst part of that movie. And the fact that Busta Rhymes, at the end of the movie, roundhouse kicks Michael Myers while saying trick or treat motherfucker and tasering him in the balls is the worst part of that movie. But here's the thing. They screened it for a test audience in New Jersey and the test audience watched the cut and in that cut, the character played by Buster Rhymes, Freddy, dies. And the feedback they got from that audience was, we love the character played by Buster Rhymes. <laughs> we want more of the character played by Buster Rhymes. And that is how you end up with a completely nonsensical ending where he suddenly sits up, tasers Michael Myers in the balls, roundhouse kicks him and says, trick or treat, motherfucker. 
Undertaker and he's alive at the end. Test screenings are kind of traps in that sense. The Flash from last year got incredible test screening scores. But one of the reasons I've seen floated for that is it got incredible test screening scores because they had not yet done the visual effects renders on those horrible, grotesque Christopher Reeve, Adam West death mask stuff at the end. (laughs) So the test audience didn't see what the studio thought was going to be the great happy ending, the real cherry on top of the Sunday, And that they had test screened, I think, with Supergirl and was it Michael Keaton at the end of the movie. So it felt like those characters had an ending and an arc. And then they were like, we'll just take those elements out because they don't fit with the larger plan for the shared universe. A lot of this stuff is just incredibly hackish. There is no plan. There is no vision. The example they give us, this was written by Matt Sazuma and Burke Sharpless. The script also includes a credited draft by S.J. Clarkson as well. But they've written Dracula Untold, The Last Witch Hunter, Gods of Egypt, Power Rangers and Morbius and Madam Web. And a lot of people are like, how do these guys continue working in the industry? And the answer based on the people who have worked with them is their first draft scripts are generally really solid. (laughs) But then the executives start writing on them with ink and start being like, okay, but can we insert X here? What if Dracula Untold is the start of a shared universe? What if Morbius is going to suddenly feature the Vulture or all this sort of stuff? The way these things get made, it's a miracle they get made at all but it's a miracle that the ones that are coherent are power rangers was good i will put say that we did a podcast on it we enjoyed it and i quite like dracula untold as silly as it is i think it's all right something you can really sink your teeth into ah nice i am legends a famous test screening one isn't it they didn't understand the ending so we got the rubbish ending the happily ever after the one that the sequel is ignoring. Yes. You make valid points about it. So often, like you say, it is the IP management. It's, we have money waiting on us retaining the Spider-Man IP. Therefore, we need to keep using it and keep justifying it. And in some cases, they do it well, where we get the animated Spider-Verse stuff, which is fantastic, really good films. And on the other hand, we're getting this in the live action space where we go, what are you doing? Why are you so misstepping in this space and trying to get all these spin-off characters in? Give us a Spider-Man movie. You are going to have a Spider-Man in your Spider-Man expanded universe, aren't you? Argument. It just doesn't seem to work. The films always seem to be trying to course correct for something. And I think if we knew what they were aiming for, we'd maybe see why they were course correcting. But I think by the time they've corrected that course in a film, they then immediately go to the next one and go, oh, right, actually we've changed the target again. So as much as we edited the last film to try and aim towards what you were doing in Craven, we're now going to direct you because you now need to point towards what we want to do in Venom 3 or what we now want to do with Spider-Man along with Marvel over on this side. And they've said, if we play nice, we might be able to feature dot, dot, dot in our next Venom film. (laughs) We've loaned Venom for Deadpool or something. We've done swapsies for content that we can get in. You get one of the Eternals. (laughs) We'll give you a mid-tier Eternal. We won't tell you which one until they show up on set. (laughs) it just seems to be made for the wrong reasons and like you say the shareholders are asking what we're doing with our ip we've got this big box there that says that we own spider-man ip and why are we not using it because marvel film plus cinema screen equal money is the adjustment and that is no longer guaranteed to be the case looking at even the stuff that the mcu has released recently It does not always equal. Darren, earlier on, you mentioned superhero fatigue. Everyone's got superhero fatigue. I think we've got bad superhero fatigue. I think if you do a good superhero movie, people will enjoy it. I think the problem is that we've had so many bad 
formulaic ones or ones that are part one of eight when you don't even know if we're going to like the first one. Putting part one in the name of a movie should just be a bad sign already. <laughs> you do not know what we're doing. The wall of logos that appear behind these people that present at conferences, there's a wall of logos of, oh, this film's happening, that film's happening. By March of this quarter... Straight through 2028, yeah. All the way up to the 2030s. About Here's all the logos of all the things. And you look at that, and I look at that, and... Probably the majority of the audience look at that. Even they themselves probably look at that and go, yeah, that ain't happening. Those dates aren't real and there's going to be something else that's going to insert itself in the middle there that they've not announced because they'll do the film. People will like the character. They'll go, oh Christ, we've not planned anything with that character. Right, they get their standalone solo film in here now and it all pivots. And you sit there and go, but you've just directed all these films to try and aim towards the grand design that you've just like smashed to pieces in front of us repeatedly. And you've made bad films off the back of that. And Marvel wasn't too bad at that until recently where they seem to have hit a bit of a confidence wobble. And now they're starting to try and do the course correction thing, which is where everyone else slips up. Where everyone else already is. Exactly. We've been talking about Sony being a problem here, and they definitely are, but everybody has the same problem. Warner Brothers have made some heavy missteps with DC, to the point where you had James Gunn trying to convince us to watch the three films that came out last year because they'd already announced the reboot, and it was hard to suggest that we should watch the three films coming out because they're going to be a race next year. The film might be good by itself, even if it doesn't go anywhere. Try and consider that. But you can't really sell that, is the thing. And you can't sell that to shareholders. Chris mentioned Marvel. The key to Marvel's early success, and I feel like I'm going to be very reductive and patronizing when I say this, but the key to Marvel's early success was making generally good movies, reliably good movies, in a franchise or a genre that was not always consistently reliable. You look at the superhero movies of the early 2000s, look at movies like the Fantastic Four movies by Tim Story, I am sorry about nostalgia, but they're not great. You look at things like the Brat Retner X-Men 3, for example, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man 3, for example. Look at things like Elektra, Daredevil, the Ghost Rider movies, the Spawn movies as well. People point to the Singer X-Men movies, the two Sam Raimi movies, the Blade movies, eventually the Nolan Batman movies. They were great, but generally speaking, the superhero genre, not great as a rule heading up to the start of the MCU. And the key Marvel innovation, people think that innovation was, we're going to tie them all together as part of a shared universe. But that was always a value add. The initial appeal was, you go and see a Marvel movie because these people know how to make superhero movies. Whatever you think about the first Iron Man, Captain America, or Thor... Those are competently made movies with a clear three-act structure, clearly outlined characters, and an enjoyable arc that hit most of the beats that they want to hit. And throughout the Infinity Saga, or what's been retroactively called the Infinity Saga, Marvel were constantly adjusting and tweaking. The Infinity Gauntlet appears in the Halls of Asgard, but oh, it's okay because we'll retroactively reveal that was a fake. Thanos is going to be the big bad because Joss Whedon thought it would be fun to include him. And then we fired Joss Whedon. We were supposed to have an Ant-Man movie, but that didn't pan out. But our plan is not so tightly interwoven that we can't just ditch that and continue on. But at some point, Marvel and... I think primarily the studios around them. This is the thing, as you point out, it affects the studios around Marvel before it affected Marvel. But Hollywood bought the hype, and the hype was, you gotta plan. You gotta have it all planned out in advance. You gotta know how these things are all gonna fit together. As Chris said, you gotta have eight of these ready to go and know exactly how they're gonna fit together. And that was never how the appeal of the MCU worked. And the problem is that 
because of Disney cranking up the volume lever, you have to have that level of coordination now with Marvel projects because you're releasing 50 hours of streaming and four movies in a year and you need to have an idea of how they all relate to one another. And that is when you run into problems because, as you said, you're no longer prioritizing making She-Hulk the best show it can be. You're prioritizing making sure that She-Hulk has all the right synergies and that it has Mark Ruffalo appear in it and it introduces Daredevil into the MCU and you also introduce the character Scar, Hulk's son, because he's going to be useful later on. And along the way, you just lose the idea of what if we just made a good She-Hulk show? <laughs> that is that is the problem with these movies. I don't think anybody ever said, what if we just make a good Madam <laughs> Web movie? <laughs> Somebody's like, I got a great idea for a Madam Web movie. The problem is that we need four Sony-adjacent projects in a year. And like, here's something I want to throw out. To their credit, Marvel are much savvier at this than the other studios. There's a reason that they are much better. There's a reason that they're the highest grossing franchise in the world. The reason is that they're a lot savvier and a lot cleverer about how they do things. They were one of the first to pull the brake on this idea of superheroes when this idea of superhero fatigue came up. And I agree with Chris, it is not superhero fatigue, it is what Lord Miller called bad movie fatigue, or movie I have seen 15 times before fatigue. I call it mediocrity fatigue. Mediocrity <laughs> fatigue. This is why if I were a betting man, I would say Joker Folly Ado is not going to be affected by this in any way, shape, or form, because that is not a movie that looks like audiences consider a superhero movie to look. It's a musical starring Lady Gaga. But the thing is, with Marvel, they pulled the brakes and they said, we're going to throttle down the amount of content we release. This year, we are only releasing one Marvel movie. Deadpool 3. And then next year, 3. It's not even that, Craig. The punchline here is that they do this and Sony are like, 2024 is going to be the year of the Spamunk. <laughs> While Disney are like, audiences, they just need to take a breather. They need to stop having superhero movies rammed down their throat. Sony are like, we see a gap in the market. Flood, flood, flood. More Spamunk. More Spamunk. Craven. Venom 3 has wrapped filming. And again, the question of whether or not audiences can distinguish between the two because obviously we can and everyone listening to this podcast can but when my mother sees madam webb and thinks it is one of the most awful pieces of cinema she has ever seen she sees the marvel logo in front of it <laughs> flipping very slowly does she make a distinction between madam webb and deadpool 3 and Thunderbolts and whatever is coming down the line. And does that damage the brand? I often make the point of Twitter isn't real life. And yeah. I think studios operate as if it is because yeah. it's like everyone is talking about this. And well, no, the user base of Twitter is probably less than 1% of the global population. So everyone is not talking about this. It's the people that aren't eternally online you need to pay attention to. Yeah. The thing about the People's Choice Awards, I saw recently they voted Rachel Zegler as the top action star yeah. or whatever. Ever, as if Tom Cruise hadn't driven a bike off a mountain or <laughs> Keanu Reeves hadn't fought his way to the top of a flight of stairs, fallen down that flight of stairs, then fought his way up it again. These are objectively better action stuff than anything Rachel Zegler's done. But the people chose her because I guess they like her. My mom loves Rachel Zegler. My mom loved that movie. So that's the kind of mentality that's real for audiences. Yeah. So audiences, they will go into the cinema, they'll see the Marvel logo, they might not read the words in association with or understand what those <laughs> words mean, and just assume this is part of that universe that has Tom Holland in it, and they make reference to him, and they may not think about, hang on, isn't he 15 and this is 2003? Does that work? No, it doesn't. It kind of does, I suppose. Well, isn't that the why they changed it? I thought they changed it so it would make that sense. That was specifically yeah. why they changed it, wasn't it? So that that number made sense. Yeah. 
<laughs> that was the whole, oh, hang on, we've made it too early. Tom Holland's going to be too old. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's all falling apart. We've got the whole plan for the spunk. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this hypothetical general audience, well, that's the biggest number, isn't it? Yeah. People aren't talking about the memes online. By and large, they're just going to see films and they'll maybe read something about them in the newspaper or whatever. People that aren't eternally online will see these things differently. And then, and as you say, Sony might be exploiting that. They've never heard the word superhero fatigue. They've just seen a lot of subpar superhero movies that, as you say, are very formulaic and samey. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm not going to go see this one because it doesn't look that good. I've kind of seen that sort of thing already, or I'll wait and see what the reviews are like before I commit my hard-earned money to the cinema to go out and see that or take the kids or whatnot, because it's expensive to go. There's a cost of living crisis (laughs) going on. People are being choosy with their content. If it's going to pop up on the streaming service in a month's time or two months time or so, I'm going to save my money. I'm not going to pop along to the cinema and do it. We are committed folk. We like to go and see these things. I saw two films on Valentine's Day. You saw two films on Valentine's Day. Exactly. We will go and see some of this stuff. I just think, like you say, it's the quality of what's coming out. Some of it will be the quantity. Like you say, Marvel have done the right thing. Marvel have went, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's have a little <laughs> yeah. bit of a gap. We've got some very good reasons to have a gap. We can sort of go acting strike, writing strike, and also a little bit of time to think about what we did. <laughs> I love the way you make it sound like we go into the corner. Yeah, we're going to go in the corner, just stand over there and think about what you did. Watch Secret Invasion six times and think about what you did. (laughs) Now come back, tell me what you did wrong. I will either nod at you or I will point to that corner again and you will go back and watch it for the further six times. When you come back with the right answer, then you're allowed to release your next movie, okay? And then next year we're going to ram three films down your throat showing that we've learned nothing. I still believe that one of those has got to move. It's one of those where you look at all the dates and all the stuff that's getting smashed together and like I said about the wall of logos, you look at all those dates and you go, one of them's moving or two of them are moving or all of them are moving. The math in my head doesn't make sense to completely spin off onto something else of we've just announced the fantastic forecasting but we're going to have the film within this space of time dates and things just don't seem to be lining up for me for some of this the problem is though you've got a chain reaction effect not only are they pulling the brakes they filmed a lot of this stuff already and it's just kind of sitting around gathering dust this year they're releasing echo and agatha those are their two live action shows i think they may be doing a third season what if as well but they've already filmed ironheart Ironheart is basically done. It is sitting on a shelf in Disney. And presumably they need to release that before they release Armor War or something like that or whatever that phase is going to be. It's all gotten so messy and so interconnected that even when you pump the brakes on it, you end up with a Madam Web style car crash type situation (laughs) where things just keep hitting into one another no matter how hard you try and look ahead into the forecast into the future. The industry seems to exist to strangle creativity in these types of films as well. And it's, it's not a new thing josh tranks fantastic yeah fantastic he never shuts up about the fact that the film that's released is nothing like the one he wanted to release and david ayer says the same thing about suicide squad now there's no guarantee that their version of the film would be any better could it be worse yeah well maybe i don't know but they seem to be passionate about the fact that they were going for something they made something they did something that they were proud of and it was taken from them i do think that's what happened here as well i think there might have been something that was going after something as we've talked about and sj clarkson lost control of it when she turned in the film my big question here is is this close to 1960s hollywood in the 1950s 1960s big studios spending incredible sums of money and you look at the budgets of these movies the marvels cost 270 million dollars indiana jones cost over 300 million dollars fast x costs over 300 million dollars 
That money's not on screen. That money is not on screen. Even with something like Mission Impossible, which costs over $300 million, you can at least see the logic of it, but it doesn't reflect the quality of what you're actually seeing on screen in most of those movies, in Fast X, in the Marvels, in Quantumania, etc. Part of me is like, is history cyclical? Are we like Madam Web trapped in this kind of eternal cycle of seeing the same things happen over and over again? But is this like where we were in the 1960s, where Hollywood was making musicals because musicals had made money during the 1950s, but as you get into the 60s, with Dr. Doolittle and various other movies, My Fair Lady. Fox had this run where they gambled on musicals and they won! The Sound of Music was one of the biggest movies of all time and they pumped it all back into another musical and it flopped and nearly destroyed the studio. Because we have learned nothing from this experience, but it does feel like we're kind of maybe reaching that point with superhero movies. And to Chris's point, musicals. Even as people were tired of westerns and musicals and historical epics in the 1950s and 1960s, as they were repeated ad nauseum, empty formulaic repetition of the same basic beats, those genres did continue and thrive into the 70s. You got revisionist westerns, for example. You got musicals like Cabaret. All that jazz was one of the 10 highest grossing movies of 1979, which is insane to think about. You had historical epics and westerns in the 70s as well that were their own things. And it's, are we reaching a point where the studio are kind of teetering over the edge that they were in the 1960s and we may possibly see some sort of engagement with creativity, some sort of indulgence of auteur theory again, getting the budgets under control, giving people you trust the power to pursue their visions. Is that possibly where we are now, where studios are getting a bit wary of superhero IP being managed into the ground? Or... Is it all just going to navigate to video game IP and we will have the exact same cycle with that? (laughs) It did seem like Marvel were heading in the direction of rewarding creativity or encouraging creativity. It did seem like they were going to start letting directors put their stamp on it because the common criticism was, oh, these Marvel movies are exactly the same. I can't tell them apart. So it's cool. We'll bring in Sam Raimi and let him do a horror movie then. Or Chloe Zhao's Eternals, for example. Where we'll film outside for the first time in 10 years, that kind of stuff. And then also on the other side of the coin, as Aaron constantly brings up, is about Multiverse of Madness, where they tell the writer, rewrite the second act. Well, I can't rewrite the second act without rewriting the first and third act. No, no, just the second act. That's all we need you to do. (laughs) We believe in you. <laughs> and you have two weeks to do it. And here's what you need to put in it. But that doesn't make any sense. When we get to the third act, people will be confused because that doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow. And it's like, I've told you to do it. I'm paying your wages. Do it. And <laughs> the guy does it. Fair enough. Yeah. He's paid to do it. It doesn't work. But he paid to do it. Same thing happens with WandaVision, where they don't know the ending of that until they're practically filming it, because as Chris said, it has to tie into Multiverse of Madness, because they haven't decided what that's going to be yet. (laughs) You can't construct a story if you don't have an idea of where it's going to end, and that ending is dependent on a completely unrelated project that is also being heavily rewritten and retooled constantly. We've started filming Spider-Man No Way Home, but we don't have Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield yet, so what do we do if they don't sign on? (laughs) I don't know. We'll do an action sequence where Peter Parker fights Doctor Strange while flying through the Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire universities. They'll drop in on the highlights of those universities, and that'll do. Fans will be okay with that, won't they? They would hate that. If they were expecting Andrew Garfield and you got Tom Holland in Times Square, we would come for you. We'd burn your studio to the ground. I love the idea that you could convince Felicity Jones. That's the best get. He lands in Times Square and Felicity Jones is just drinking a coffee, looking at him confused for a second. <laughs> That's how you know it's the Andrew Garfield universe. She's checking her phone and it has cat a cat logo case. on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that kind of nonsense. So it seemed like Marvel were heading down the, we'll let directors do what they do 
but then they're not. And also they seem to have pivoted back to the whole, don't worry about most of this, we'll deal with it. And you get the actors in a room and make them talk to each other. I don't know. Just do that. It'll be fine. Isn't there that famous story about the first consideration for Black Widow, the director? Yeah. Lucretia Martel being told, don't worry about the action scenes. We've got an in-house team that'll do that for you. And she's like, why would I want to direct a superhero movie (laughs) if you're not going to let me direct the action scenes? But we've got this dinner seat that's a family together. Yeah, we think you could really kill. No, actually, I've just checked. The dinner party <laughs> scene, they want in. They want to handle that one. We've got a separate team that'll do that for you. We've already filmed it. You can maybe sit in on the editing, but we won't listen to you. You should probably book yourself into another project, though. You should make sure you're filming another project <laughs> with an actor you like while we're doing post-production. It'll be fine. Don't worry. You could tell people it's what Spielberg did on Schindler's List. It'll be grand. <laughs> I love Nia DaCosta, and I feel like she got so horribly, horribly screwed in that situation. The thing that is really depressing, sorry, this is not a Madam Web, com- although maybe it is a Madam Web complaint. I think it's all part of it, though, isn't it? It's all part of the same web, the same tapestry, tying it all together. The thing for me with the modern wave of Marvel stuff, and I'm thinking particularly the past six months. In the past, Marvel's attitude has always been, we will fix it in post. (laughs) And we will spend however much money we need to, to do A, work VFX workers to the bone, make sure that they never see their families again, make sure that many of them leave the industry that they love as broken human beings, in order to make sure that we have two people fighting each other in CGI in our finale, color-coded energy blasts, etc. The other thing we do is we will spend as much money as it takes to do reshoots with the actors for as long as it takes to get it done. The famous example of this is Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. The set photos from the final scene of that movie came out three weeks before the movie was released, they were reshooting the ending of that three weeks before that hit cinemas. The story they tell about Multiverse of Madness is that Benedict Cumberbatch was at the BAFTAs in like January of the year that that was releasing, maybe February. And they were saying, so you're really excited about Multiverse of Madness being released. I'm really looking forward to it being finished shooting. (laughs) And then obviously just shooting in Georgia, using green screens, compositing, all that sort of stuff, but spending the money that it would take to get them quote unquote right in post-production. And that didn't work, obviously. That's a big problem with the phase four of Marvel movies is that you can tell that they feel cobbled together in post-production, clumsily, hastily, and reactionary. But what's really galling is that it feels like the wave of movies or projects more recently, the studio has obviously talking to shareholders and it's people like Ike Perlmutter who are quite rightly telling Bob Iger to get budgets under control these things cannot cost $270 million. They cannot cost $300 million. So it feels like now the solution is just edit them, cut them as hard as you can. Just make sure that these things go quickly and are all under the two hour mark because we may be able to bump up opening weekend numbers by having more screenings in cinemas. So the examples I think of here are like the Marvels, which costs $272 million, has three lead characters, ties together two shows and a billion dollar grossing movie, and is also somehow the shortest movie in the MCU, inexplicably. (laughs) And when you watch the movie, it is very clear it has been edited to within an inch of its life. But I'm thinking of something like, say, Echo is an example as well, where that was rumoured as eight episodes, announced as six episodes, and released as five episodes. And they were all dumped at once because that was a way to game it to get it on the Nielsen metrics, because those are based on minutes viewed. So instead of having 10 people watch one episode of Loki, you could have two people watch five episodes of Echo and they would count just the same in order to get on there. But it does feel like Marvel have kind of learnt the wrong lessons where they've just given up What they were doing, which was spending large sums of money to fix this stuff in post, was bad and wrong and not working. What they are doing now is, let's just take a chainsaw 
to the edit and make this as painless as possible for anybody. Madam Web is over in under two hours, isn't it? Yeah. To its credit, mercifully, it's under two hours. But it does feel like the solution to this is we're not going to reshoot anything. We're not going to do any additional video effects. We're going to try and fix it all by cutting these things in a way that renders them borderline incoherent. That's not fixing the problem, guys. And Aquaman's a great example as well, where the original Aquaman is like two hours and 20 minutes, but the sequel is one hour 40. And you can tell the instruction was cut, 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 cut. Well, it's easy when you cut all those Batman cameos. Yeah. That's, that's 20 minutes <laughs> gone already. Yeah. That's my assumption with some of these things that they cut, especially in the DC case. It's like, see all those scenes that were completely unnecessary and were simply <laughs> lining up nonsense that we were going to do later. All those can go. Oh, Christ, the film's only an hour and a half. We'll need to do some reshoots to add time to this now because you've just cut the nonsense that we were forced to put in the film in the first place. I quite like sometimes when films are shorter. <laughs> I've said to Craig before, before we walked into stuff, how long's this one? <laughs> some of them now you just go why is this the length that it is on the other hand like you say there's others that have just been snipped to within inches of their life there's other ones where you sit there and go i know exactly which half hour i would cut of this film <laughs> this is the point where you do want a studio note that says maybe reel that in a bit <laughs> you watch endgame and three hours fly by you don't feel that time exactly whereas on the other hand if you watch thunder force and it's 88 minutes of your life that feels like it lasts several weeks you do have that discourse around the fact that films should only be a certain length but no it's not it's the command of pacing that you're thinking about well that's the ebert line no good film is too long and no bad film is short enough exactly and to give some credit to madam webb there is a feeling of tactility in the way that it's filmed they shoot in location in New York, didn't they? Yeah, so there's some blue screen, obviously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but things like, and I'm talking more in the early part of the film, it's the accident scenes. Yes. It feels like they did that on a studio lot, and they got extras in, and they blew stuff up. and Yeah, they had ambulances that were physical cars that they could move. So there was that. It was later in the film where it's, we've decided we need this sequence now, so... CGI. And that's the MCU approach, isn't it? We've decided that we're going to change our third act completely, but it's fine because all we have to do is change the zoom background. Or that's our understanding of how visual effects work. We reskin it. The Pepsi factory is now a fireworks factory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we got a note back from Pepsi. They said, you cannot have exploding Pepsi in your film. Can you change what's in the factory to fireworks? Yeah. You're sincerely Pepsi. <laughs> I cannot get over the first time that I notice a Pepsi appearing in the movie is Dakota Johnson as the lead character Madam Webb saying I don't want a Pepsi <laughs> other soft drinks brands are available <laughs> Coca-Cola wouldn't go near this so we got Pepsi instead they're Atlanta based they're a Marvel company now <laughs> now a word from our sponsor Oasis <laughs> <laughs> refreshing refreshing mm. one of the hosts will be crushed by a giant O at the end of the podcast <laughs> Obviously, Twitter isn't real life again, but it does seem like this is getting a lot of attention as the case study for how broken the industry is in general when it comes to blockbuster cinema. And then you're also seeing reports that suggest that no lessons are going to be learned anytime soon. Things like, we're getting David Kep to write a Jurassic Park movie and Gareth Edwards might direct it. Will you watch it? Will you watch it? It's another Jurassic Park movie. And I know that the World Trilogy, despite being awful, cleared a billion dollars in each entry, yep. but still, it just seems like the churn isn't going to stop anytime soon. And the thing is, I would watch a million spider 
adjacent films if they were good, because I love comic book movies. I love comic books. I love these characters. But when I go and see something like this, I come out of it thinking, it's hilarious how broken this all is. And it's hilarious to think about Sony's approach to these Spider-Man adjacent characters as well. Craven the Hunter is not one of my favourite Spider-Man villains. So if I'm going to put up with them, I'm going to put up with them in a Spider-Man movie. I want to see them adapt Craven's Last Hunt or something like that. Although Craven's Last Hunt doesn't make sense as a first appearance of Craven the Hunter. <laughs> It has to be a way down the line. Do you need to build towards his last hunt? Craig, this is the studio thought. You're in the room with the head of Sony and he's like, okay, Craven trilogy question mark. Now you've done it. So you want me to make three Spider-Man movies where Craven's the main villain? Because that sounds pretty painful. No, no, no. No, you do Craven Origins. That's it, yeah. You gotta introduce him by himself. You gotta stand on his own. You want the audience rooting for Craven when he fights Spider-Man. We also <laughs> don't know if Marvel are gonna let him fight Spider-Man, but we'll get back to that he one. He might fight Venom, though. Craven's last hunt could be Craven versus Venom. But we've lined up our first three of the new <laughs> Spider-Man films, because in the first film, he's gonna fight Venom. In the second film, he's gonna fight Morbius. And then he's got Craven in the third one, and all throughout, he's gonna be really annoyed by Madam Web showing up. <laughs> <laughs> it's all built. They're building the great foundation of which the Spider-Man temple is going to be built upon. The spider totem, if you will. <laughs> the spider totem is going to be built on. To Craig's point, though, the point that Craig made there about learning the wrong lesson, the thing that I take away from this is that the Anvil or the Ankler reported that Sony are partnered with Amazon making Spider-Man shows. The Spamunk is coming to streaming. <laughs> but basically, they announced they have, is it Silk, the Spider Society, is yeah. the one that they had an active development. Development. Apparently, after the opening weekend of Madam Web, the Ankler reported that they were retooling Silk to make it less women-centric, to make it more boy-friendly, because presumably the assumption was the problem with Madam Web was that they all had vaginas. It was nothing to do with the writing or the scripting or the plotting or the editing. If it had been Monsieur Web, it would have been a billion-dollar grocer. But the thing is, at the same time this is happening, as you're hearing the industry accept that superhero fatigue is quote-unquote real or whatever, the quote from that Hollywood Reporter article that bounces round my head when I close my eyes at night, I just hear it, like Lisa needs braces, dental plan, <laughs> is we really wish we could do Shazam 2 numbers. <laughs> In the midst of the industry accepting this, you also have Amazon going, live action Spider-Man noir series starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> And I'm like, you guys have learned nothing. You guys have learned less than nothing. You guys have learned the wrong lesson from this. The problem with Madam Web is how you made it. It is not the <laughs> fact that it is a bunch of women. I can't wait to see Silk with Charlie Moon instead of Cindy Moon. This guy that got bitten by the same spider as no one. <laughs> <laughs> this previously hungry spider that had done nothing. <laughs> famished spider bitten by the spider who bit this kid you might know him he's from queens his name is <laughs> <laughs> who keeps popping those balloons around me yeah, yeah. stop popping the damn balloons yeah why is there always a balloon does this kid have powers like me i legally am not allowed to say i would describe them as a spider person <laughs> Ceiling Man. You know Ceiling, ceiling Man. man. Yeah. <laughs> Roll it back even further. The Amazing Spider-Man 2, where it's... The plan was, yeah, we're going to do millions of spin-offs on the back of this. Yeah. We're going to build to Sinister Six solo movie, which I think is still coming based yeah. on what we've got here. And 
that failed because people didn't want to watch a Spider-Man movie that was just an advert for other movies. They wanted a film that was just a Spider-Man movie. And it failed because we have this long scene where Peter finds out that his dad put his DNA in a spider. So now only Peter Parker can be Spider-Man, no one else. And we have long scenes of other stuff being set up. And oh yeah, the villains, they're not going to have agency of their own. They just go into Oscorp and get a backpack. And now you're Dr. <laughs> Octopus because you have the octopus backpack or the vulture backpack. And we got the vulture backpack here. The thing about that which just really galls me is the Sinister Six thing. And I want to shout out, I think it's Luke Dunn, the Irish film critic, point this out. The Sinister Six has been an obsession for Sony for God knows how long. And it's kind of hilarious that in the time they have obsessed with this, you have DC doing two Suicide Squad movies and Marvel doing a Thunderbolts movie. So the time you finally get around to doing a super villain themed movie, it'll seem like you're reheating leftovers. But Luke Dunn, the Irish film critic, pointed out you go to Spider-Man No Way Home, which grosses a billion dollars. $2 billion is a massive success, is beloved by everybody. And you look at the number of villains in it and you go, huh. So Dr. Octopus, Green Goblin, Sandman, Electro, and who's that? There's one more. The Lizard. The Lizard. And you're like, one, two, three, four. Couldn't we think of one more? Couldn't we put Gyllenhaal in this movie? Well, he's kind of there. His voice appears at the start of the movie. But you have to imagine some Sony executive was like, so close, so (laughs) close. We've heard that Spider-Man's villains team up, and that's cool, but... We're going to do a villain team-up movie without Spider-Man in it. Spider-Man in the middle of it. So why are these six people getting together? (laughs) You're right. It should be like a holdovers type situation where they're stranded at Rikers Island or something like that over Christmas. (laughs) So who would our spum Sinister Six be? Michael Keaton is the big one, right? Yeah, so the Vulture, who's borrowed from another universe. (laughs) And Morbius, so that's two. Craven, that's three. Ezekiel, he's not dead. That's four. He just has a giant pea-shaped scar <laughs> on his head. That's it, isn't it? I suppose Carnage, where Venom would be. Oh, He's not a villain. Yeah. I don't know. Venom and Carnage. There you go. You've done it. Here's the thing, right? The Sinister Six is not an A-tier property anyway, because it is Spider-Man adjacent. But the Sinister Six that you are naming is somehow a B-tier of a B-tier. <laughs> The supporting cast of the Sinister Six. It's like if the Sinister Six sent their henchmen out instead, they were too lazy to do it. It's like that joke you mentioned where, oh my god, Tom Holland and Bender Cumberbatch fly through the universe and see Felicity Jones. The ten people who will turn up on opening day to see a Sinister Six movie, as the title card unveils, Ezekiel from Madam Web. (laughs) Wait a minute, where is Dr. Octopus? Where is the Lizard? Where is Mysterio? Where is Venom? Where is any of these characters? Characters who I recognise. <laughs> and again, the reason that you bring them together is because they've all been wronged by Spider-Man. They're all got vengeful for Spider-Man. You need to have an actual <laughs> Spider-Man in order to do that as well. We haven't had a Spider-Man who's fought six villains. Never mind. <laughs> you need a Spider-Man that has engaged with any of these characters whatsoever. The reason that you got away with the ones in the previous film was because you had three different Spider-Men so you could bring in all their villains. And they added up to five. And they added up to five. (laughs) So you still suck. That was combining three Spider-Men. You don't have one Spider-Man in your spunk that you can use yet. (laughs) 
Because if you try now to hook Holland in and go, ah, turns out Tom Holland was here all along. Here we go. Here's all the green screen reshoots where we've put him into the background of everything that you've witnessed now. And here's how he has a very close tie to every single one of these characters. And now they're vengeful. What? How? Chris, you're overthinking it. (laughs) I am overthinking it. You have a moment where the vulture goes, look, there's one guy who's wronged us. We all know who he is. He's a boy. He's kind of like an arachnid-type figure. We need to hunt him down and deal with it. But in the meantime, I've been haunted by visions of three very manly spider-themed superheroes. So we're going to deal with that first. That post credit scene for Morbius was laughable. Michael Keaton's like, I don't know why I'm here. Something to do with Spider-Man, I think. Anyway, how about forming a team? None of this. I want to get back to my daughter in my universe. Also, we're in the middle of the desert for some reason, and I have assumed that the vampire man is the only person who can help me. I opted not to go to the giant long-turned lizard man who looks like Spider-Man. I went straight to Dr. Michael Morbius. So it's basically ill-conceived from the get-go, but I don't think it's Sony's problem entirely because every major studio is getting it wrong when it comes to this sort of thing. And obviously there are exceptions to that where not every blockbuster is just going to be an absolute disaster. Whereas you could look at, you've seen it, Darren, we haven't, but June part two, it seems like they just gave Villeneuve a check and said make a film and he did that's certainly the case in the first one and even more so with the second one things like gaydy pride where he's like i want to do it in black and white and the first time they're like i don't know if you can do it and the second time it's like okay denny you can do it in black and white <laughs> but june's one of those ones where we've got a very hard fast solid canon we've got very good one source material one canon one version of june as source material. Whereas in the comic book world, you've got so many different variations of characters and so many different origin tweaks and multiverses. And in this one, they're kind of a bit of a villain. In this one, they're actually not. In this one, they're younger. In this one, they're older. In this one, they have kids. That spins out that they don't know what way to point when they're trying to do these things as well. There is an end to Dune. It's got a stopping point. Comics are like a soap opera. It never ends. It goes on. But that's why you let the creative people get on with it. The proof is there that if you just leave them to it, they'll make great stuff. Sam Raimi, two Spider-Man films, zero interference, or at least minimal interference. They're great. Spider-Man 3, the studio are suddenly like, do this, do this, do this. Do Venom for the kids. Yeah, it's a mixed (laughs) bag. The Avengers, they let Joss Whedon just get on with it. And it's one of the best superhero films, and I would argue probably one of the best blockbusters ever. Age of Ultron, they're like, we have notes. Yeah. And then Joss Whedon's talented enough to work within them to some degree, but even then the seams are obvious. So there are examples of, if you leave a creative person with an idea of what they're doing to it, they'll make something. And you get directors that work better with the studios than others, say James Gunn, for example, but he seems to have the confidence and clout to push back a bit and be trusted. Plus they fired him, so they probably didn't scrutinise him too heavily when they brought him back. I imagine part of the condition of him going back was being the rare Marvel director to have Final Cut. He's the rare Marvel director to be credited in the opening credits of Guardians 3, which I find interesting. Yeah, so the evidence is there, isn't it? If you let the creative people work, they'll do it. To an extent, sometimes there is moments where you look at the ones where someone has been given more free reign and you go "Eh, in this case maybe they should have been reeled in just a little bit Taika Waititi yeah I spoke about that when we did that podcast or at least to you afterwards there's little bits where you go oh you've gone too far and you kind of needed someone just to nudge you a bit you never go to full Taika 
I'm not saying that the studio exec should be going in with full sway to completely, like you say, rip out the middle act of a film and replace it. Or we're now going to absolutely change the decade this is in. We're going to ADR half the dialogue out of it. It's not going to be the film you shot anymore. I don't agree with that. There's got to be a certain amount in there. And I think you're right. It's unfair that there's some directors that are high enough. I mean, we were talking earlier on about actors who have got a bit more free reign to go, oh, actually, I'll talk how I want on the press tour because I don't care if you hire me for your next thing or not. It's the exact same with directors and stuff. There are directors who, if Marvel turn around and say, ah, we don't like what you're doing with this, or Disney execs or Sony execs say, ah, I don't like that, we want you to replace your middle act, they'll go, that's fine, I'm off, bye. And they go. They leave. How many times do you hear that director X has left this project even before it's shot or once it started shooting? Where as soon as they started getting the stuff, they go, ah, bye bye. Well, it was Edgar Wright, wasn't it? He was, you're not letting me make the Ant-Man film I want. I'm gone. And then he goes. I wanted to make a Marvel movie. Marvel didn't want to make an Edgar Wright movie. Isn't that the quote that he has? Yeah, yeah. It's that point. And those directors like Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright knows I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be fine. Yeah, I'll be I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. The other directors, where this is their first shot at the big time or their first this is going to make me or break me kind of film they are going to have to pay attention to the notes because they don't want to be kicked off or blamed when everything goes wrong yeah and then wasn't it bob Iger that recently said that studio execs should be having more input into the creative yeah. process <laughs> they should be on set more often is the thing that was the problem we shouldn't be letting creatives run around <laughs> That was the thing with Rings of Power, where one of the reasons cited in the Deadline report for moving Rings of Power from New Zealand to the UK was that during COVID, it was easier for executives to visit the UK than it was to visit New Zealand because they wanted to be on set. I would argue, to Chris's point, the ideal should be that you should be making movies that are budgeted to such an extent that even if a director goes off the rails slightly you don't tank the studio. <laughs> I'm looking at Madam Web here, and look, obviously nobody is happy with Madam Web, and nobody is happy with the film's financial performance. It has a budget reported of $80 million. I think it costs over $100 million, but tax credits bumped it down to 80 It has made $53 million worldwide, which is obviously not great, to be clear. It needs to make four times that to be a success, doesn't it? 2.5, I think, isn't it? 2.5 to break even is generally the, Something the like number. That, yeah, because the marketing budget's as much as the production budget pretty much the same as it was and you only get a certain percentage share of cinema tickets as well and obviously in the old days you could sell it on secondary market and you would make a profit on everything the story rob reiner tells is 10 years 20 years after the princess bride is released he gets a phone call from his accountant saying by the way you got your first royalty check because it finally turned a profit <laughs> if you waited long enough in the old days anything could make a profit and also things didn't cost as much as they do now so it didn't matter as much but the idea that even accepting that this is a flop and a failure and everybody has on their face and that's very bad i'm not defending the movie to be clear even at that assuming we stop earning now at 50 billion dollars on an 80 million dollar budget that will still have lost less money for sony than the flash did for warner brothers <laughs> that's the insane thing about this situation that's the thing you should be fighting to control these budgets we mentioned dune part two a movie that i loved a movie that i think looks gorgeous that only cost 190 million dollars that cost 80 million dollars less than the marvels and it <laughs> looks several times more expensive in terms of quality the famous story doing the rounds is about the creator that only cost 80 million again visually stunning yeah. it's because the effect yeah. sequences they were storyboarded they were signed off they were yeah. planned and they knew how much they were going to cost and then they just made the film and the creator maybe isn't the best film in the world but it's to be admired for what it did 
For $80 million? Yeah, that's the thing. To Chris's point, you can't afford to give those directors freedom if the fate of the studio isn't (laughs) riding on them. I understand why Bob Iger is breathing down the neck of everybody making a Marvel movie, because whether or not he will have a job in the morning depends on how their movie performs. He has a very real stake in it. My argument is that you need to take that out. We need to scale down. We need to cool the box office arms race. We're all in a fireworks factory, and we can't tell which direction they're going to go. Plan the film before you make it and then make the film and then you'll find that it costs less and it's less disjointed as well. On the clout thing as well, I know Tom Holland's been talking about how if it's not the Spider-Man film he wants to make, he's not going to do it for the next one. And I don't know how much of that's bluster or whatever, but he's in that rare position as an actor where he can walk away because he's made a ton of money on it and there's offers on his desk piled up to the ceiling probably. And the same thing with Jenna Ortega walking away from Scream after that mess. They need her more than she needs them. Yeah, she has that clout as well. And it's funny, Jenna Ortega versus Sydney Sweeney, how Jenna Ortega can do that where Sydney Sweeney can't. But keep in mind that Ortega has Wednesday. That's the difference. Sweeney obviously has Euphoria, but you think Euphoria, you think Zendaya. The only worrying thing about releasing the press statements like that, where you go, oh, I'm only going to make the next Spider-Man movie if it's the kind of Spider-Man movie I want, is if the next Spider-Man movie is absolute bobbins (laughs) with you in it. You've got no way of turning around and going, well... (laughs) You can't pull a Dakota Johnson and go, they yelled the word explosion at me. It's a bit like Patrick Stewart saying, I'm in the writer's room for Picard, so don't even worry about it. It's going to be amazing. And then then it comes out and it's, oh, Patrick Stewart, you don't seem to know Picard as well as you think you do. Don't fear fans, my fingerprints are all over this murder scene. It doesn't even have to be a big project. The Star Trek Next Generation movies, where Stewart and Spiner negotiated their contract movie after movie, which is why every Next Generation movie has Picard riding a dune buggy because Patrick Stewart wants to drive a dune buggy, (laughs) and Data gets an identical clone that allows Brent Spiner to play a six-year-old child mentally because that's what Brent Spiner wants to do this time, and who are you going to tell him if you want Data in your movie? Yeah. Maybe creative control is not a great thing to give to actors. Have we just talked ourselves around, guys? The studio system's great. There's no issues whatsoever. Keep going, guys. You're doing fantastic work. I guess the emphasis is on the collaboration, but you also need the people collaborating to know what they're talking about. Because if it's the former CEO of a soft drinks company who thinks they know what will sell a film, then you probably shouldn't listen to them. But they're also paying your bills. And also, I would understand the fact that someone's giving you, I don't know, $100 million to make a movie. You have to work with them and listen to what they want at the same time. You can't just say, no, that's crap. I'm going to do it my way with your money. There's that aspect as well. I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect way to make these things, I guess, but there obviously are better ways than this. And we've seen examples of it working really well where directors are given a lot of money and they turn out something that's really good. The example I think of is Nolan. Nolan is my go-to example for this sort of thing. And obviously he is sui generis. He's his own thing. There's no other director working like Nolan today. But the way in which he managed to work his way through the studio system, which would argue to be impossible today, is that he always makes sure that he finishes his films on time. He hits his deadlines. He arrives weeks before he's scheduled to. And he also makes sure that he comes in under budget. And his argument is that as long as he was able to do that, there was no way the studio could justify the hassle of taking the movie from him. That's kind of my philosophy. That would be my argument as well. If you can keep the film under budget, and if you can deliver it in the timescale that you said you would, whatever you do in that window, as long as we have pre-agreed, and as long as the age rating is appropriate or whatever, anything you do in that window is perfectly fine. I hired you. I picked you. I made a choice that you were the person to do this. You should be given the freedom to do it. And if you don't hit any of those targets, then it's perfectly reasonable for me to come down and ask, where is my movie? Why haven't you given me my movie? 
When are you giving me my movie? I have some thoughts. Or if you have to come hat in hand and say, actually, it turns out I misestimated that. I didn't know how much that was going to cost. Then it's fair for me to go, okay, maybe you don't know what you're doing. Allow me to intervene. I'm a big fan of that Nolan idea of if you say how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take, as long as you do it within that window, you should be trusted. Well, there's as many stories about Josh Trank on Fant Forstick having no clue what he was doing and taking the money over budget and wanting to fight Miles Teller, which I can understand. I kind of want to fight him too. I was about to say, that feels like it's a universal experience in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, there's that. And then there's the also weirdly anti-creative thing of these franchises in the first place, the idea that Marvel have decided, we're going to make an Ant-Man movie. The guy that really wanted to make it is gone because he doesn't like the way we work. Who wants to make this? That would seem to be, we need a gun for hire to make this thing. So it's going to feel like a gun for hire project at the end, maybe. You mentioned the creator a moment ago. That's the depressing quote about Jurassic World or the new Jurassic World movie. It's, we don't need a director, we need a shooter. The release schedule in this is so competitive we basically need somebody who is not going to do anything but exactly what he is told that's really depressing because edwards just did the creator which was this very personal very auteurish very clearly important to him project that was deeply personal and a labor of love and is now just a shooter his job is to get the train into the station on time because jurassic park famously is popular because it could have been made by anyone right there's no famous director that that movie is attached to there's no stamp of creativity on that. There's no vision attached to that film. It's just, yeah, you can churn those out. It's just a spiel. It's a casual spiel. It's a regular tale story, you know? I mean, yeah. So yeah, we've talked a lot about how broken the industry is. Sorry, this was an upper. And we've laughed a lot about Madam Web. So that's probably a good point to wrap up. Darren, since you're a recurring guest, what is going on in your sphere of the internet? On your strand of the web, as it were? There we go. You can find me at Darren underscore Mooney on Twitter. I'm also at Second Wind, which is a consortium of people who engage in cultural criticism. I am the film TV guy. I write articles for the $5 Patreon tier there. I also do videos every second week. The Backdrop, edited by the wonderful Jesse Schwab, the fantastic Omar Ahmed. Really fun stuff. Really enjoy doing it. If you like the sound of my voice, I do a podcast weekly called The 250 with my good friend Andrew Quinn. I don't know when this is coming out, but that doesn't matter because we are doing the podcast by the seat of our pants at the moment. So I think we will have a couple of weeks ago released an episode on generations we will maybe have also released an episode on see this is how seat of the pants we are we may have released an episode on monty python and the holy grail i don't know for sure so there's a bit of suspense you're as planned out as the sony spum universe the spum yeah i'm looking into the future and i don't like what i'm seeing <laughs> But yeah, that's where you can check it out. So just Google the 250, Google Darren Mooney, and all my stuff will come up. Cheers. Cool. All your relevant links will be in the show notes, like last Thank you time, very much. like your Doctor Who appearance. Any last points on Madam Web or the state of the film industry? Chris, do you have any final things that you didn't get to say about either of these things? I'll probably think of something later and be like, why did I never mention this? But no, probably more than enough for me. But we can fix it in post. In post, it can all be fixed. It's all done. It will be edited in. You could record it and I can insert it at the point where I say, Chris, do you have anything else to say? And then it will be replaced with, yes, I do. Another voice actor will dub you over and make sure the audience can't see your lips move because it's an audio <laughs> medium. Yeah, that's it. Chris was on a podcast with two different hosts, it turns out. We decided to remove Darren and Greg in post-production. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and the podcast is now about something that's popular. Chris has opinions on AI. <laughs> Well, that was our conversation about Madam Web. Thanks to Anna Pantsu for the supplied music. And if you enjoyed what you heard, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere that podcasts are found, you will find us. We are connected by the web of podcast <laughs> platforms that play podcasts. How many web jokes can I get in here? Quite a lot, it seems. As well integrated as the plot point in Madam Web. Most of these places allow you to rate and review, usually in a star rating system. So, Darren, how many stars should they give us? I believe it's five. Yeah. And Chris, should they give us a comment, do you think? I think they should comment, and where they see stuff, they should like and subscribe. Absolutely. Yes, that sounds good to me. And if you want to discuss Madam Web or anything else really you can hit us up on Facebook Twitter or Blue Sky under Neil Before Blog or you could join us on Discord or you could leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk but until next time we will catch you no. <laughs> oh you were doing so well <laughs> you were doing so well I was like oh he's come out and do it you did a real when you accept great responsibility great power will follow us you can follow us on wait a minute <laughs> And as always, you can catch us next time on Neil Before Pod. Yeah.